Hello and welcome to AA, a gaming, comics, and pop culture podcast by Adam and Alex. Today, on our very first episode, we'll be covering the ubiquitous Elden Ring, as well as going a little into our prior history with games made by From Software. So Alex, before we start, I wanted to know what's your what's your history with FromSoft games, with Dark Souls. Um, so my history starts off honestly with a lot of failure. Um, I didn't really click with Dark Souls until maybe something like three years ago. Uh, to be totally honest, um, I initially tried the Prepare to Die edition of Dark Souls on PC many years ago. Um, didn't work out for me. Um, didn't really know. I tried to play it with a controller. Didn't really know how to do that. I was a PC gamer pretty much exclusively up until that point. Keyboard and mouse. Not a lot of controller usage. Probably not the best way for me to start playing, you know, a Souls game as my first real controller dependent game. Like that just made um, my lack of dexterity in that particular arena that much more notable. Um Eventually, I bought it for the Switch. So this is post about 2018. Uh, I forget when the, the Switch edition of Dark Souls came out. Maybe like 2019. Uh, but around then is... Yeah, we could actually Google this too. But around then is when I, I essentially gave Dark Souls a second try. It was the remastered edition that came out on Switch. Because I had a Switch and I was buying so many games for the Switch. And it was like, eh, it's time. Um, I also... 2018 okay so that is okay i think it wasn't until 2019 that i actually gave it that second try or actually by this point third try um and that time it stuck and i don't know what it was specifically it could have been that by that point i had played um more action games more games that required me to use a controller i'd had a switch at that point for a couple of years um so that made a difference had you tried any of the other FromSoft stuff? Like, I know people sometimes talk about Kingsfield or Kuon or even something like, I think, Enchanted Arms or whatever. So my only exposure to Kingsfield is the Waypoint uh, stream that they've done. And I'm somewhat curious to check it out, honestly, based on that. Um, I think I had heard of Kingsfield before, briefly, when I was much, much younger, um, around the time it was coming out. But I'd never played it. Um, and really it wasn't until I finally broke through the Dark Souls ceiling, if you will. Um, and I really clicked with that game and I got that first boss high and I was like, holy shit, th- these games are also, oh, I guess we're cursing on the spot now. So that's that we just ripped that bandaid. We, we just ripped that bandaid right off. <laughs> Fair. Um, I mean, hear this on the recording, so the, we uh the, can that might yeah we could we could actually uh we could you know whenever people say they'll edit stuff out on pods it stays in the pod so uh anyway but yeah so basically once like i caught the dark souls bug i went from that to uh i think i went to bloodborne then dark souls 2 then sekiro and then dark souls 3 all within the span of like two and a half years i just went through those games super duper fast and now I played Elden Ring. So, Alex, Alex, I have to know what's your favorite 
What's your favorite? What's your favorite from Soft? Um, it's gonna be a cop out, but I think it might be Elden Ring. Uh, I, I, it just brings so much of it together. It's also the only one. I have spent more time in Elden Ring than probably any of these other games at this point, and I've spent considerable amounts of time in all of those. Um, it's the only one that has still hooked me enough to go back for New Game Plus. So, so before we go on to Elden Ring, I want to very briefly go into my own experience of From Software stuff. Yeah, so I am really a Dark Souls person. My journey, I, I think I got into Dark Souls a little earlier than Alex did. I didn't have a PS3, so I couldn't play Demon Souls, but I was kind of keeping an eye on games critics at the time and following how you a good number of them were really sort of getting into it and enjoying it. Like I was just reading all the pieces that people like Kaza and McDonald were writing and that kind of thing about how great it was. And it had me pretty curious, but it was for a console I couldn't really use. So I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting outside thing. Now, eventually Dark Souls comes out and Dark Souls seemed really cool. I started seeing even more people talking about Dark Souls, people writing about Dark Souls. I remember Kaza McDonald's, again, a review of Dark Souls in IGN just sort of talking about how interesting and difficult it was. I remember seeing a review, uh, not a review, but an article in Eurogamer that was talking about kind of making the argument at the expense of Skyrim, which was sort of like the big important fantasy RPG at that time, talking about how Skyrim was effectively obsolete and Dark Souls was kind of the real game that was well made and had good environmental storytelling and that kind of thing. And of course it had me really curious because like I'd bounced off a bunch of Elden a bunch of uh Elder Scroll stuff in the in the past and I was like, ooh, what could the real open world RPG be like? I mean in retrospect, like I think Skyrim and like that particular model and Dark Souls are completely incompatible. And also like in retrospect, Dark Souls is not perfect. I love it, but it's really messy in a lot of ways. So I I'm not sure how useful that comparison actually is. But when Dark Souls was announced for PC I got really excited. I bought it magically. It ran on my crappy laptop and I played through a bunch of it all the way up to Blight Town where I stopped because it was uh, too hard and intense. Yeah, it was Blight Town. It was gross. It was poisonous. There were horrible mosquitoes. I ended up in a giant swamp. Giants were throwing rocks at me. I never got to the cool spider down there. It was sad. But so I... Get super excited for Bloodborne. Of course, I get it the moment that I have a working PS4. I go through it. I love Bloodborne. I think that one of my favorite aspects of these games is their aesthetics more than anything else. And I, to me, people may feel differently. To me, Bloodborne has the best the best aesthetics of any game in that series. It's all about luxuriating in this horrible, gross space full of weird, corrupt, rotting things. I love it a lot. It's great. Um, so that's definitely probably before Elden Ring came up, we can talk more about it later, but that was my previous sort of benchmark for what that series could do. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course I played a little bit of Dark Souls 3, but not a lot of it. I've sort of read a bit about Dark Souls 2 and I've read arguments that you could draw connections between Dark Souls 2 and what From Software is up to with Elden Ring. And I've, I've done a little bit of research in the stuff like Kingsfield or Shadow Tower. And my impression is that FromSoft has been around for a long time, it's been making games for a long time. 
there's many more connections between their earlier stuff and their later stuff than I think a lot of current people like to honestly admit or talk about. And at the end of that long journey, we have Elden Ring, which is everything and which is huge and which has consumed the brain space of a lot of people, including people who might not have thought a lot about like games of this type before and might not have thought it was for them. So, uh, Alex, I want to ask you, since I've been rambling on for a okay, bit. I have one thing to add before. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm going to pass the microphone on to him, and he's going to say something else. So, um, quick counterpoint to your uh, statement about Bloodborne having, in your opinion, the, the, the best aesthetic. Um, I think Sekiro has the most cohesive aesthetic, actually, of those games. Um, I really do appreciate that that game is probably the first souls game that i feel like was able to or was is Sekiro a souls game that's a separate question but i think it does somewhat fit into this this sort of through line of games but it's really the first game that does both lush and decaying environments i think with a degree of success and immersion that to me was really interesting because bloodborne is very cohesive i agree but it is very much locked into a sort of cityscape. And yeah, that cityscape goes from somewhat understandable at the beginning to completely, you know, surreal by, by the end. And there's various like dream moments that, you know, it's very Cthulian, very Lovecraftian, obviously. But um, what Sekiro, I think, it, the reason I really enjoyed it is because it allows for those moments that are actually just really peaceful. Uh, while at the same time confronting you with horror. And while you do get those moments in older games, it's normally in very dark environments. Whereas, again, in, in Sekiro, there is more... It feels more lush. It feels more, uh, I don't know, living um, than some of these other games. That I mean, all, all of them ultimately deal with death. But the progression from life to death is more clearly communicated to me in Sekiro, which is why I think it's the most successful. And, and this... I will come back around to this because this is a point that I have to make about Elden Ring as well. Okay, so we've both talked a bit about our past experience. So with all that set up, now we can talk about Elden Ring. Um, so Alex, I've written a couple questions down. I want to get some of your responses to this. What I'm interested in right now, I want to put my finger on what exactly Elden Ring is just because it's so big. I know at the start of, when I first started playing Elden Ring, I was kind of just taken aback by how much it was. And it really felt like one of those incredible magic tricks where I was thinking, like, it, it can't be this, right? Like, that can't be what it is. It can't just be all of this. This is too much. And over time and over several hours, there is this sort of reassessment where I kind of went, oh, it's, it's a video game. It's real. Like, it's not some impossible thing. It's like, you can sort of see how it all lines up and how it was actually made. But even considering once the sort of sense of wonder fades off and you start to get more of a sense of what it is, I feel like it's still a lot. Like it's still kind of all encompassing and huge and almost sort of an intimidating way. So I got my question to you, first of all, uh, what, what is, what is Elden Ring really? And you can approach that as specific or as broadly as you want. So the very dumb and simple answer that I will give to that is that it's a bunch of souls dungeons that are tied together by a very big immersive uh, open world. Um, and you can either criticize how 
sort of sparse or not that open world is. I've seen criticisms of the fact that the open world itself doesn't necessarily present you with enough. Um, I disagree with that. I think just the, the, the element of choice that it gives you is probably one of the most compelling elements that this game brings to Souls games. Like, do you not want to go through Stormvale right now? Do you want to instead go to Kaled and hate your very existence? Yeah, by all means, go do that. The game's not going to stop you. And I think that choice feels more meaningful in how you choose to experience the world in Elden Ring than it ever has in a Souls game because it is open world, um, whatever that means in in the broader gaming sense because it can mean different things. Um, but I think that that is what makes an Elden Ring. It's that it is it it unglues you from any sense of you know sort of a chart like progression through these choke points in these older souls games where you basically have to go from this area to this area to that area to get to this other area maybe you can bypass it through this third area and and somehow it all comes together um but you still get that experience in some somewhat limited fashion in dungeons but the connective tissue is is just that much bigger so I hear you say Souls Dungeons, and I hear you say Open World, but those are both things we've seen a lot of before. Like, there have been a bunch of Souls games, and those Souls games are infamously pretty iterative in that they are always kind of building on the previous one. And in fact, you could probably apply that to From Software's entire output, where you can kind of see stuff in the Souls games. They're iterating on things they already tried in the Kingsfield games, probably. And when you say Open World... I think about all the open worlds of the past, like Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, Far Cry, Skyrim. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Skyrim was a huge influence. I, you can sort of see the outlines of like bits and pieces of Elden of uh, Elders. I keep saying Elden Scrolls. I, I, I keep seeing bits and I keep I keep seeing bits and pieces of uh, Elder Scrolls stuff in there. Um, it really does. Both of these things are known quantities. They're not really surprising. But I, I get the impression from reviews that no, Elden, uh, Elden Ring is a surprising game. It's a new game. Uh, so I, I'm really curious. Do you think that Elden Ring is new? Do you think it's doing anything that hasn't been done before? Yes. So, you know, we, we, you've mentioned Elder Scrolls now. And I had to I had to check myself from saying Elden Scrolls at this point. Um, you've mentioned it a few times. And I think it's a good time for me to mention my own relationship with elder scrolls because it's bad that was a joke what, what el, uh, i mean well it it is in a way and, and i and actually i want to get to that because my first experience was with morrowind which in it, depending on how you regard oh, it's all right well so that's the thing depending on how you and, and adam said that it's all right so depending on how you regard the history of the elder scrolls game morrowind is where it all started to go wrong <laughs> Uh, because that is when one of the original creators of Elder Scrolls was kind of pushed out and a different vision for what would make those games interesting sort of took over. Um, And those games became less role-playing and they became more about immersion into the open world. Um, And you can kind of see that with Oblivion. They they were really emphasizing like these lush environments and the ability to communicate all that. And of course, Skyrim ended up being this huge, huge game. Um, But I've never finished an Elder Scrolls game. Um, I initially found Morrowind um, around the time when I was in college and I got really into it. And during the span of one summer vacation, I spent innumerable hours playing that game only to have my hard drive fail and I lost the entire save. 
And I did start again. Also made it pretty far into the game at that point, but I was just burnt out and I, I just couldn't get past the final, you know, sort of hurdle and finish the main quest and actually finish an Elder uh, Elder Scrolls game. Uh, it, it, it's, it's now forever cursed. Uh, so from that, I went into Oblivion. I was very hyped for Oblivion when it was when it first got announced. Um, also never finished it for some reason. Just didn't didn't really, you know, keep me engaged. I also spent a lot of time with Skyrim and then just never finished it. So to some extent, you could say that I have enjoyed Elder Scrolls a lot. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in those games. There's things that I do enjoy um, about those games and the immersion that they provide. But one thing they do not provide at all is any engagement, any true engagement combat-wise. You just go and swing your sword and pew-pew your magic and things die. And they're... There's not a lot of strategy, really. Like it's gotten kind of progressively dumber as those games have have advanced from Morrowind to to Skyrim. It um, it doesn't feel engaging. And and one of the things that you know I've really fallen in love with Souls games is that builds can matter. Dark Souls Two proved that. I mean, that game is all about different builds mattering and different ways and giving you that variety of of role playing and how you build up a character. Um. You know, your skill in dodging and just, just dexterity, like your real world dexterity matters. Like there is playstyle, there's strategy, there's, I mean, shoot, on a complete tangent, I went to, I, I spectated a Taekwondo tournament today. And the way that I was able to watch those sparring matches and think about those sparring matches has been shaped by the way that I think about boss, think about boss battles in Souls games. So that is how pervasive Sort of the the combat philosophy of Souls games can be, um, and to to take that and bring it to that open world immersiveness that you have in so in 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 Elden Ring, Elden, in in Elder Scrolls games, um, is I think what makes Elden Ring unique. So what you're saying is that um, what makes Elden Ring interesting is it's like an Elder Scrolls game but with good fighting. I mean, to be highly reductive, yes. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, I think that is a big part of it. Um, but I think that makes a big difference because that's what... It, it's what can hook you beyond the initial high of discovering the world. Um, and I am now on my new game plus, and I've already discovered the world. There's, I, I'm not going to have the sparkles in my eyes as I go from Limgrave to Lyurnia. Like, it's not as exciting but what brings me back is that I want to try different builds. I want to, I, hell, I want to go back to Caelid and feel overpowered with my Rivers of Blood build and just tear those things to shreds. So it's, um, I think it's interesting that you brought up Elder, well, we've sort of both brought up Elder Scrolls at this point. Um, what I find fascinating thinking through this, thinking about Elder Scrolls alongside like sort of what the Souls games provide if we dissociate it from this idea of like this one has good gameplay this one's better than the other they do kind of i think provide different experiences or i get the sense people go to them for different things when i hear people talk about the elder scrolls game and what makes them good i hear people say uh this run i'm going to play as a lumberjack in uh, elder scrolls and just spend all my time chopping wood or i'm going to be a bandit and run up and uh, backstab people and take all their stuff. 
or I'm going to build a house and just spend all my time sleeping in the house, or I want to collect every pillow in the world. And that's not really something that Elden Ring provides you. It's not interested in that. You're only... In all the other Souls games, your main way of interacting with the world is killing things. And um, Elden Ring does give you an additional verb, which is sneaking. So you can sneak, but ultimately you're killing eventually. And yeah, so that's like the sort of you can be this character who kills the entities that run the world. And that's really the only way you play it. So the whole thing is constructed around that. Uh, The fighting is good because it has to be good because you don't really have any choice but to fight. While on the Elder Scrolls games, I get the impression a lot of people do play them at by going around and killing things. Like that's part of it. But it's a bit more varied than that. It's more experiential. Now I actually agree with you. I do I, I don't know if I can speak to like whether the Elder Scrolls games are really good or not, because I've never I've always bounced off them. I've never really sunk my teeth in the one. Maybe if I ever do it's gonna be Morrowind. But Dark Souls does have that it's I think it is as silly as it is to say about Elden Ring because it's so sprawling. It feels tighter wound because it's very much built around US sort of a killer, US sort of a conqueror in that way. Um rather than providing these alternatives where you can sort of play the game in other ways. And I say this despite the fact that even in something like Morrowind, from what I've heard most of the quests just resolve in kill this guy or bribe this guy or collect like three things or whatever. Like to some degree, those games are all kind of just built around that as well. They don't actually give you, aside from like your own goals going into it, it's not as if the game meaningfully like gives you the opportunities to be a pillow abductor in the system. That's more something on the outside that you can adopt on your own if you want. Right. Um, so I have a couple of things to say to that. And that's actually one of the thoughts that I had while I played um, through Elden Ring and what it could be in the future actually came from something that I think the Elder Scrolls series has done better. And that is have some system of morality. Um, there is no real morality in uh in dark souls games ultimately the only way to your point the only way to interact with the world is to kill things killing is expected of you there is no morality or immorality to to killing um maybe eventually you cross a line that's too far like do you want to go the uh, i don't want to go into spoilers but there are certain endings there's really one ending that where if you go too far there is a recognition that you've gone too far and people that you've interacted with will will draw that line in the sand and say, nah, man, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. That's it. You're on your own. And then if you truly go through that entire line, they will be like, I will kill you if I see you again. So, but that is like a very limited end of game thing. There's no, you know, um, real uh, harm to killing everything that comes across your path. Like, yeah, if you kill an NPC... You know they won't trade with you again if you. But if hell, you can kill one of the the merchants, and the other merchants are gonna be like, nah, it's okay, I don't care. I think it's interesting you bring that up because I feel like 
more than some of the other games in this series or like within this company's output. Elden Ring is a game that sort of puts more limitations on who you can harm. Like I know there are spaces within it where you aren't actually allowed to kill anyone and you aren't allowed to hurt them. And that is sort of baked into the story. I, I would actually also push back against sort of a lack of morality in Elden Ring. I mean, I guess it is true. It's not a Bioware kind of thing where you're put into positions where you say, do you help the person or harm them? I mean, a lot of the time you're kind of following a path and often maybe like some good will come out of your actions or some bad will come out of your actions, but it sort of feels like that comes about based on these interactions versus, but I think maybe what I would say is that whether or not Elden Ring has morality, it definitely has judgment. Like it has a perspective, even just something as basic as going into one of these uh, underground tombs, these grave sites in the world and seeing the roots at their bottom and how the roots are just filled with corpses and even thinking in like the first couple hours of the game this is a world with a giant beautiful tree and at the roots of those trees are just dead bodies like all of these dead bodies deep underground being just forcibly taken by this large beautiful thing i feel like you can just see something like that and you immediately know that you're within the boundaries of this world where there are like maybe good people and bad people, but also just things aren't really right. And I think also like the people making the game know it. Like they've created this world that is unjust and is unfair. Um, regardless of your interaction to it, regardless of the fact that your only interaction with it really is just talking to people, making limited decisions, and killing things. Those are within a larger context that the creators have made in advance. And that they do probably have feelings about like you're trying to kind of give you this experience of like figuring out the rules of this world and how it all maps and having your understanding sort of shaped over time now with that in mind um regarding the question of what is elder elden ring um one possible explanation i have for what elden ring is that i've had in mind uh, since we're talking about this and like kind of larger judgment and perspective Elden Ring to me, which is funny because George R. R. Martin supposedly did like work on it some and consult. Elden Ring is kind of a fantasy novel. It's like a 1,000, it's a sort of like 1,000 page fantasy novel you'd buy from a bookstore and very slowly read through. And it has like a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses you expect from that kind of book. Like there's a lot of it, there's a lot of detail. And if you're someone who loves detail, you can get into all the nuances. There's lots of great scenes just because there's so much of it. But it's also the fact that there is so much of it is also sort of alienating in a way. It means that, like, there are some sections that are better than others. There are bits that are kind of slow. There's a question of, like, should this novel be this long to begin with? My impression with this game, just sort of following forum threads and that kind of thing, people love talking about it. They always, like, fall deeply in love with it when they start. They've also seen a lot of people who just. They play it for like a hundred hours. They can't help themselves. And then they just get really burnt out. They like feel like they sort of have to keep playing and they resent the fact they have to keep playing. And their final analysis is, oh, this game is too much cake. Like there's too much of it. It asks us to like just do a lot of things. That's kind of repetitive. Why are we doing this? I don't know if this 
is a fatal flaw or it's just a question of well you don't have to do everything you can only do the things you're interested in and that's fine but i am curious to hear as someone who i know does read a lot of fantasy novels especially very long fantasy novels what your feelings are about that and um whether you think the experience does map over similarly or if there's something else going on in your mind so what I will say to that, so first I'm going to address the burnout issue because I actually did experience that burnout in reference to Dark Souls 3, actually. Mm. Um, and that could have well been a result of also trying to chug through five different, yeah, five different very difficult, very long games in the span of two and a half years. Um, granted, there were some breaks in between. I played, I do play other games. Uh, Xenoblade says hello. Uh, but... It and that's another really long game series that I consumed in a similar time span. But um, the the point being that I did get to like the very last one of these games that I played, which was Dark Souls Three, before Elden, like literally right before Elden Ring, it was one of the last major games I played, and I got almost all the way to the end. I got to essentially a, a portion of the game where I was just trying to get through the DLC content before I properly finished the story. And I just ran out of steam. It just was having to fight or try to get through this one boss for like the, the millionth time was just, it was just a bridge too far. And I just set it aside and I went and I played, uh, I think I went and played Pokemon Arceus, actually, Legends Arceus for, for a while. Uh, and I finished that game and then I went back and I was able to finish Dark Souls 3 just before getting into Elden Ring. But my experience with Elden Ring has been such that I have not experienced that type of burnout. And the reason I haven't is because the game is open. So if I hit a, a dead end, if I'm suddenly, I, I reach something where it does feel very repetitive, I'm able to go somewhere else and do something else. You're not locked into these single points of progression quite the same way that you were in older Dark Souls games. And I think that does make the game more unique. Um, that being said, the end game does really funnel you down a very narrow path. So I could understand why people might get that far and then just be just too much. But even there, there are other things you could do. But that's also coming from someone who's experienced in a short period of time, pretty much every single Soulsborne game plus Sekiro, with the exception, exception notable exception of Demon Souls. I will go back and play that sometime in the near future. But um, even so, um, I, I've, I've felt that my experience has not been as burnouty with this game. Um, that being said, the other, so the other element of that is the narrative component. Um, I actually think this game has had the most compelling and deeply constructed lore, I think, of any of these games. Um, I've gone back and rewatched the beginning cinematic now that I finished the game. I just finished the game like on Friday. Um, and there's things in there that resonate differently having seen the end of the game. And I think I'm going to be peeling back the layers of the lore in this game for much longer. And I have a much deeper interest in doing so than I did with older games because there is just more there. Um, I feel like the choices that you make that feed into the endings are more interesting. Um, I think there's more sort of shippable elements to this game about characters that are cool or, you know, 
people simping for various characters that I've seen in this one game than I have in all of the other Souls games before. So I think that does speak to a deeper and more interesting lore. I've definitely seen a lot of Rani art and I've seen a lot of Blade art just everywhere. Everyone's saying, Rani is my wife. Blade is my best friend. Rani and Blade are married. Rani and the Tarnished are married. That kind of thing. Just everywhere. I guess an additional question for you is... Um, so what do you say, is the story in Elden Ring, is it that it's deeper or is it that it's simply more clearly delivered? Because I feel like, um, the other Souls games or other games by this developer, there often are smaller details buried pretty deep if you know where to look for them. I kind of wonder if like, I mean, Miyazaki himself, uh, the producer of these games has pointed out in an interview that they tried to sort of be more transparent with the characters in Elden Ring than they are typically. Like, they're sort of more open about their motivations. I know that based on some little tidbits I've heard of what happens later, you still sort of have the kinds of backstabbing and kind of revelations that happen in those other games as well. But would you, did you get the impression that these characters are, like, more open about their feelings? Or were had, had dialogue that was sort of less obscured? Or would you say that it's more that you think more work was put into making them more distinctive characters versus more like uh, avatars in the game? I th- there's definitely it definitely feels like there's more NPCs and more quest lines and just more to the tapestry in this game than really I've seen in any other one of these games. Um, there's just so much more to experience story wise, and I think it's all more intricately constructed together so that you are able to to really get a sense for the world um i don't want to necessarily spoil this but there is a quest line there's in fact two quest lines that come together in a very unexpected way there's this one very kind of foppish noble guy very early on who you meet wears a very fancy suit of armor wants to like save his servant or something um and then there's the warrior jar Alexander. Uh, Dialos is the name of the foppish noble guy that I'm not actually talking about. The other foppish noble guy is, yeah, not Kenneth, not Kenneth. This is, I guess he's not really that foppish. Uh, Dialos is, you know, he, he just seems like kind of bigger talk than action. Um, and then warrior jar Alexander and those two quest lines eventually do collide in a way. Um, I did not see that coming and it's it it speaks to a depth of quest lines that is that fleshes out the world and ultimately made me care for Diallos who I initially hated uh, in a way that I did not see coming like it was probably one of the most like moving quest lines that I experienced in this game or one of the most in, in just every single way from what happened you know from Alexander to to Diallos so um, but what I will add is this quest line was not finished until the patch came out and speaking of patches, literally the character patches, I don't think his quest line is finished in the game yet. Um, there, where I was last able to meet him, he gives me an item. Giving that item to the person that he wants me to give it to doesn't result in any real. She's just, well, spoilers. It's a she. I don't want to necessarily spoil this this bit, but um. What she tells you is just like, okay, cool, this is an item. And then it goes back to whatever she's doing. And there's no follow-up to that. Patches is not yet confirmed as being seen anywhere else past this one point where you encounter him. Um, He also, 
is left in a situation where presumably maybe he dies at that point, but it's left really unclear. If so, this would truly be the first game in which Patches dies, but I find that hard to believe, short of seeing him evaporate in a puff of smoke. Uh, Patches and will always be alive in our hearts. That's exactly right. Patches will always be alive in our hearts. So, um, But suffice to say, it still feels unfinished, and I do wonder um, whether there's still an element to the narrative quest-wise that is is not quite finished. Um, I do think that narrative tapestry got more interesting with the, the last patch. There's, there's some things that I totally missed in my first playthrough just because of where I was in the story relative to where the patch came out and I was just locked out of those those uh, progressions. But um, to, to kind of bring it all back around, I think this game does a better job through its quests to basically clue you in on what's happening in the world and the complexity of the world. But that being said, the grand story is just as impenetrable as it's ever been. You, There will be videos about this game on YouTube and the story and explaining it for months, years to come. Yeah, it's tough to know when you're talking about Elden Ring, where Elden Ring begins and where it stops. You might say, uh, I think this character's storyline is unfinished, but I also feel like there are people who had that sense that certain people's stories were unfinished, but I, I think he also had people who just assumed, oh, that's just the way these games are. Of course, it's like, it seems oblique or unfinished. And we now know that, in fact, the version of the game that came out didn't wasn't complete in those ways, or like was having stuff in the code that they meant to be in there, but wasn't there. Um, but that it, it is sort of, to some degree, the experience of playing through these games that despite the fact that people obsess over them as if they're these complete untouchable works of art that are kind of deliberately constructed in such a way that they're supposed to convey a certain thing to you. We know that, I mean, Elden Ring certainly is kind of a mess. Like it's a lot of individual pieces all stuck together. It's sprawling. It's a little unfocused sometimes. And this is regarding what Elden Ring is. This is something else I wanted to get at. There's a review that uh, the reviewer Dia Lacina, I may have mispronounced her name, I'm sorry, that she wrote back when the game first came out that to me was kind of the definitive review of Elden Ring, where she talks about what Elden Ring is, like whether Elden Ring is new or whether it's just a reversioning of the same old thing. And Lacina calls Elden Ring a grafting and I think that's exactly right. I think that's what it is. The trick of Elden Ring is that it's not just a bigger version of what these games are. It's not a new version of what these games are. It's, and this is not a new take, but I think it's the right one. It's every single game that the studio's ever made stuck onto each other. Just all of it. It's all in there. There's the sort of there's the horror stuff from Bloodborne. There's the sense that you sort of got from Sekiro, where instead of you being fully in like a post-apocalyptic kind of situation, that their living characters were still playing out their stories in that way. There's the sort of cycles of repetition and range of choice from the Dark Souls games. There probably, even if you went back to earlier games as well, you would find some references to those. It's really all of it. And I think, well, that does imply that this game is not 
revolutionary in any way that it's all just made out of recycled elements. I think in a way that does kind of make it revolutionary because there has never been a game from From Software that's been so ambitious and just including so much. Like if it is a greatest hits album, if it is just like an overwhelming cornucopia of stuff, it's the largest, most varied one they've ever put together. And there is, I think, an interesting tension that is generated from all that stuff existing in the same space. Like there's the um one there's the sort of regular medieval environments you see in a Dark Souls game that just exists side by side with all the really gross stuff in Kaled that exists side by side with some even weirder stuff that also again has these characters that are more sort of traditionally talkative. Um and I think that does give it a really interesting texture that just isn't present in the other games just because those have to be more focused by design. I don't necessarily think it's a question of Elden Ring is like the best put together of these games. I think it's more that Elden Ring was the point at which they realized they had the resources and just the sheer amount of stuff they could repurpose from past projects to create something of that scale. And they did it. I mean, they put it all together. I think you can def you can, I've seen people criticize it for being incomplete. I have seen people criticize it for not being fully rounded, but I think you cannot argue that it is probably like the single most complex thing that from software has ever attempted. And probably, I mean, I don't even know, well, we can have this conversation later, but I'm not sure when they'll be able to top it, if that's even a reasonable concern. So that does get into a second conversation topic that we'll have to cover. And that is, can, and I think you, you, you mean to bring this up as well, Adam, and that is, can, you know, where do we go from this? Can they top this? Is there an Elden Ring 2 that, should there be an Elden Ring 2 or another game that builds on this? But before we get to that, I had one thing to add, and I, I fundamentally agree this game is a grafting of all of the various games they've done before. And that includes Kingsfield. I mean, to the extent that Kingsfield's DNA was arguably in Dark Souls 2 and now is arguably in Elden Ring, it goes all the way back to that game. Um, but um, that aside, there's a secondary element to, to that grafting, and that is the issue of refinement and maybe a lack of refinement of some of the grafting components where people have, I think, rightfully said, well, this is just straight out, you know, mechanically, it's straight out of Dark Souls 3. They could have improved on this and they didn't. But I think as much as that is kind of there and unrefined, there is in the element of what they chose to graft, what they chose to pick from Sekiro, what they chose to pick from Bloodborne, either in the aesthetic sense or in the mechanical sense, because it does feel like you can stagger enemies more akin to Sekiro in this one, which is a more unique mechanic to that game. And I think you see more of it in Elden Ring now. Um, and it can be a very powerful one. Um, suffice to say, there are certain bosses that people have struggled with that, well, if you just find a way to stagger them, of course, it might require you to change your your the way you play the game and that's a problem but in of itself but anyway i don't want to get too much into the mechanical element but um the point being by making those choices of what they would take from which of these games i think there is a refinement to in, into a new formula for what these games can be i think 
there will be a discourse maybe a decade or two from now when instead of talking about Souls games, we could be talking about Elden games because I think Elden Ring does begin to reformulate what one of these games could be uh, that goes beyond what the Souls games were uh, potentially. Uh, but it does, I think, hinge on what comes next. Does something come next? Does what come next look more like Dark Souls or does it look more like Elden Ring? Now, since we were talking about picking and choosing elements, something I did absolutely want to bring up was like how Elden Ring not just picks and chooses from within the universe of games made by From Software, but draws from other games as well. And not even um, open world games, but older role-playing games and tabletop games. One of the tricky things about the games industry, at least in my opinion, is how consumed it is by itself. It's something I know a lot of developers and designers really struggle against, this sense that when all you're ever doing is just playing other people's computer games, you just start thinking in terms of computer games, or like not even in terms of that, but just a very specific set of computer games. Like It could be that your awareness becomes limited to adventure games, or your awareness becomes limited to action games. And you sort of lose a broader perspective in favor of this hyper-focused thing on what you're trying to approach. Elden Ring makes a bunch of choices in terms of what it picks from that I think certain developers might think of as bad game design because they might seem outdated. Like, um, there's a section in Stormvale Castle, which is the very first, like, main dungeon in Elden Ring, or like the one, the first big challenge, where you open a door, and suddenly the whole screen turns black, and you hear, ah, ha, ah, 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 and then you're locked inside the room, you can't get out, and there's a monster knight in there who tries to fight you. This is like, this is a monster closet, really? Like, this is the kind of thing where people criticize Final Fantasy 2, like not Final Fantasy 4 with the Paladin, but like Final Fantasy 2, the weird like Akatoshi Kawazu game that was all weird and messy. That's the same decision he was criticized for when he put that out for the NES. Like, why, why don't you design like a proper dungeon? Why are you like just having random rooms where the only thing that happens is you open up the room and a monster attacks? And yet here's Elden Ring just creating an encounter that's just, you open a door you go inside the door, there's a monster and you can't get out. And that's it. It's, it's kind of silly when you think about it. And honestly, Elden Ring, it's not afraid to be silly. Like if we're talking about silliness, there is an early place in this game where you go, where wolves literally just rain from the sky. Like you you walk up a hill and when you're, Awoo, and the wolves just fall down and they attack you. And I guess the implication is these wolves just jump from the hills and fly through the air to pounce on you from afar, which is, it's ridiculous. It's like, you tell that to someone working on a Horizon Zero Dawn game, they'll say, what are you doing? People break their sense of disbelief. But you know, I think the people who made Elden Ring, they know that back in the day, we're not even talking about something like a Final Fantasy game or a Dragon Quest game. We're going further back than that. We're talking like wizardry. You walk through a dungeon in wizardry, monsters will just appear out of nowhere and they will fight you. There's no explanation given for where the monsters came from. They don't just like come out of the walls. They don't fall from the sky. This isn't even like a dungeon, I think dungeon master. Um, 
this isn't even like a game that comes up with an explanation for why the monsters are there. It gives them a hole to come out of or where they exist continuously in the world. This is just one where they will just pop out of nowhere and fight you. And that that's all it is. And you can criticize Elden Ring for that, but I think that Elden Ring, to me, is more interesting because it does take such specific deep cuts from earlier material. It makes, I think, the very smart choice of if it's going to borrow tropes from earlier role-playing games, it's going to borrow ones that are no longer as popular. It'll take out-of-nowhere encounters. It'll take invisible walls which is a whole other thing and also something that's freaked people out. Like just recently there's been a controversy that their invisible wall, their, whether it was a mistake or not, there is an invisible wall in the game you have to hit multiple times for it to disappear. You can say, well, how the world is so big, what do you need invisible walls for? Like why are they there? Is it just too much to ask or to expect to have people be that vigilant all the time when there's so like when you're in an open world? it's seemingly ridiculous to expect people to be able to just know that a wall is there. I think that's fair and you can have that discussion, but I think it is to me sort of a defining aspect of these games that they do look back further and draw from these influences that modern games have either forgotten or no longer care to indulge in. And despite the fact that these influences are kind of retrograde in their own way, I think it says something that a lot of new fans have embraced them. Like, people don't say, oh, it's terrible that the wolves just fall from the sky. That's so stupid. They love them. They love that the wolves fall from the sky. So you have to ask, like, is the problem, like, if it's been so long since these older devices and tricks were used, why not reuse them? And also, like, how many of these older devices are just ripe for being reused. Like, why not, I don't know, like, bring back passwords? Why not um, just, I mean, we already kind of saw it, like, how roguelikes were frowned upon for a long time and then suddenly became a big deal and sort of reshaped so many modern video games, probably including stuff like Elden Ring. Like, Elden Ring, the From Software games, games themselves probably take I mean, I can't say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if they don't take influence from games like Rogue or NetHack. Like, there's that similar sense of confusion and obfuscation. Or, like, a Tower of Duraga as well. Kind of um, Japanese video game that, by today's standards, is extremely opaque and badly designed. But in the context of its time, where Tower of Duraga was, like, arcade, an arcade machine that had untold secrets just covered with notes explaining all the secrets with just this whole kind of whisper network of people passing along stories of what this game was and how to manipulate it. I think it's worth... I have a question. I have a follow-up question. Oh, sorry. I'm going to... Yeah. So, so, so real quick follow-up question before we get too far from that one point. And that is... Because um, you did bring up the issue of passwords, for instance. So let's let's bring up the elephant in the room. Should Elden Ring have a quest log for all of the side quests that you have to do? Well, you don't have to do. That you probably would like to do, but you might miss otherwise. I think one of the biggest criticisms that the game has seen, and I struggle with it myself, is it a legitimate criticism? Because 
my own solution to how I complete most of these quests is I look them up on Fextra Life. I don't keep a journal. I don't myself do the note taking that I probably should. Um, I just go to an outside resource and it tells me what to do. Should they give up and just put in a quest log or some kind of like more explicit quest directions in the game? Like most modern role-playing games have done at this point where they basically handhold you through i mean you look at the most recent xenoblade games they literally draw a path on the map for where you need to go um as a, as another example so you know is that quality of life needed is it maybe a different change to the because because sometimes you, you just don't you get some hint of where characters are going to go next but it's pretty opaque at times we were sort of having this discussion earlier about these games as complete entities, like whether they are works in progress or whether they're designed to be opaque and complex. I think that on one hand, it is sort of part of the series aesthetic and identity to be kind of hard to figure out and to have this very complicated texture where you're always sort of reacting and left in the dark and confused. On the other hand, people made that same argument about the lack of NPC markers. They were saying, uh, why are NPCs not listed on the map? Why do you have to make all those marks yourself? Like, this game is too big. It's impossible to know where anyone is. And there are fans who were saying, well, you know, it's just the way it's designed. You can't criticize them because they, they must have meant that to be the case. Like, they must have constructed it that way so that you can't see where the NPCs are as part of the experience. But it came out, you know, eventually from software patched NPC markers into the game. And people were saying, who'd played the beta test, well, those NPC markers were in there to begin with. Like, you could already see where people were. The problem wasn't... The problem wasn't that NPC markers were this new thing that was brought in it was that they were in there before but for whatever reason disappeared like they were supposed to be there so i think you know when it comes to talking about what elden ring is it's very easy to make an argument saying oh well this is just the way it's supposed to be but we don't really know that i mean could there be a quest long probably to me it's more of a question of well what are quests in elden ring really i think to me Elden Ring quests are a little atypical just in the way they're constructed where often it's less about at least in the ones I've seen so far so I should say I'm still pretty early in the game Alex has played much more than I have I'm in uh, Lyurnia the Lakes right now about 30 hours in I haven't even been to Caleb yet I haven't encountered the horrible bleeding dogs that deal damage to you like every frame per second like i have not been there um oh they're in atlas plateau oh god well wherever they are i don't want to go anywhere near them yet um my impression of the quest so far is you find someone on the map and you talk to them and then you find them somewhere else and you talk to them like and that seems to me the kind of map of the experience of earlier souls games where these sorts of they're less about checking things off they're less about checking boxes and more about having sort of unexpected encounters of people that may or may not slowly build up to more as you go on i'm 
personally, I kind of like the fact that while it's great to seek those things out, that they aren't really required. My impression is that, at least as far as I know, you can often beat the game without having to engage a lot of that stuff. Um, so, on the other... On the other hand, I, I, I don't necessarily think that there is a problem with making some of that stuff more transparent. Even if it was just a matter of saying, uh, this character wants this, there's a way that you could construct that or create a kind of guidance that keeps the feeling of the source material while still giving you slightly more direction. I think especially for people who would like just some way of keeping track of that stuff, there's a way they could do justice to it. I and have, a, I have a, an actual recommendation. For, for... I actually had an answer to my own sort of challenge of whether or not there should be a quest tracker. I actually don't think a quest tracker is the solution um, because one of the things that I've really enjoyed seeing, well, what, what I've really experienced for the first time with Elden Ring because it's the first of these games that I've played in real time as it's come out is the discourse you know of the community trying to figure out does patches show up again after this one location just seeing that develop as a conversation has been fascinating with people trying to like parse all of this out so you know that's something that i missed out on until now most of the games that i've played from you know this these Souls games, they were kind of resolved as a puzzle. There was DLC and all of that had happened before I really got to the games. So I kind of missed out on that initial uncertainty or sense of discovery of, you know, what what could be still hidden in these games that we haven't found yet. So to, to make that somewhat brief, the solution that I have and the thing that I struggle with sometimes is it's the quality of life of remembering what a character has told you in the past. Because most of the time they tell you you know, where they might go to next or, you know, whatever. Uh, they give you some kind of hint as to what might happen next. Um, this is fairly early on, so you might have already run into this, Adam. And that is when you first meet Warrior Jar Alexander, he tells you that he's going to a festival in the West, in Kalid, which is the Radon Festival. And I had not picked up on that fact until I went into New Game Plus, I met him again, and I was like, oh, he, he I kind of just glossed over it. And I was like, oh, he tells you he's going to be at this festival, and that's when you run into him next. And not only that, but it tells you that this festival is taking place, and it's a pretty major thing that happens in the game. So, um, But that connective tissue might bounce off of you when you first encounter it, maybe because you're not paying enough attention. But, you know, on second glance, it's important so just having a, a tracker, a log of all of the dialogue that you have with with NPCs in the game that just records you know, when you've met someone um, and talked to them, that would be nice because it is, it's a lot to remember. I don't need the game to tell me where to go to next, but that I think would be a nice adjustment. I think it would be a pretty nice feature to have, to have just like a little record of what little points of what characters might tell you. And to be fair, to some degree, through the item descriptions, it is already something that exists in the game. Like, you can look up so many individual items you might have in your inventory, and they'll tell you a little fact. Like, uh, oh, this character lives over here. Or, uh, this item hails from this particular part of the world map. Like, that is, to some extent, already baked into the game. So, 
you reminded me of a thing that I've heard speculation that there might've been initially a bestiary that was built into the game and then it got lost somewhere in development. That would would have been awesome. I, I don't know what half of these things are called. It's like, well, that's a small hand trying to kill me. That looks like a spider. That's a big hand that's trying to kill me. That looks like a spider. I guess we got dino dogs and monster crows, but uh, you know, it'd be nice to know. And if there was more lore associated with them. I want to also bring up, before we get too sidetracked, if we're talking about a sense of discovery and about tracking these things down and discovering new things, I really want to talk about the teleporters. Because if we're talking about elements from earlier games that Elden Ring brings back unexpectedly, I think teleporters are great. They're terrifying. There's a teleporter very early in the game that you almost will certainly run into. Like You're almost kind of set up for it. You go into this small underground dungeon, you fight some enemies, you find a nice little treasure chest... You open it up, you go, oh, great, finally, people say the Twin Blade's in this area. I can't wait to find a Twin Blade. But no, you get transported to this horrible place on another part of the map. And you have, I mean, it isn't as if you do some kind of structured quest to get out. You just have to run for your life. And if you're lucky, you go in the right direction and you find yourself in a place where you can return. It, I, that, it's the kind of decision that is sort of pointedly unfriendly that I, I can understand why it would turn people away or not make them no longer interested. I personally think it's really funny. I think that sense of humor is also like an important aspect of these games that they will often sort of make a joke at your expense or they'll put you in a situation that seems terrifying at the time. But when you look at it, back at it, you'll laugh and say, ha ha, remember that time when I got like, I climbed all the way up this tower and the tower was called the Tower of Return and you were like, I wonder why it's called the Tower of Return. But then you go, that's why it's called the Tower of Return. No one told me about that, right? It's that it's that sort of it's how it enables that kind of sense of discovery where it's sort of and also that the, it's not as if the teleporters are very carefully constructed or seated so that each one takes you a unique place. Sometimes teleporters will take you to the same place. Sometimes a teleporter might just take you to some completely different place you've never seen. Um, I mean, I guess keeping track of the teleporters on your map is sort of a frustrating thing sometimes for me, especially in a place like Lyrna of the Lakes, where you have several teleporters that take you to many different places. And sometimes for me, like remembering which each one does can be a little frustrating. But I, I personally do really enjoy that the game brings that back and sort of finds this new, to me, entertaining way of injecting some chaos into your experience, but in a way that's sort of consistently expanding your understanding of what particular experience you're having is. And that, I think, uh, brings up an sort of interesting element of what makes... Souls games interesting to me why I've fallen in love with them over the, the recent years it's not really just the combat um, it's ultimately the sense of discovery exploring a Dark Souls dungeon to me is one of the most entertaining things that I really get out of these games yeah, the combat is, is challenging it's interesting it's fun it, you know it's the way that you engage with the world to some extent but it's it's really the sense of discovery and the satisfaction of seeing the maps come together that has really kept me coming back to these games 
again and again and again. And Elden Ring, while it simultaneously refines those same types of dungeons, I mean, I would say that Stormvale Castle and some of the later game dungeons are some of the best dungeons I've seen in Souls games. Like, they take elements from everything from Demon Souls through Bloodborne. Like, you get everything from those catacombs that you get in, you know... Um, Right, the Chalice Dungeons, right. Uh, and and then, you know, some of the more, like, crazy locations you get in Bloodborne. Like, you know, you're in Lyurnia, and there's... Um, I forget which game it was that had done this before. Where horrible sack man who abducts you? They, they do... They do do an, an abduction. There is an abduction, actually, in, in Elden Ring. And it is it is in Lyurnia, I believe, that it can happen. And it'll take you... I forget exactly what the quest line is that it enables you so to do. But but yeah, but there is an abduction. So, so that also returns. But no, there's... Um, I forget if there if it was another one of these games that had done this. But I my memory says that I think so. Um, where there's a dungeon that you can turn upside down. Um, but that that does happen in this game as well. But like some of those elements to me speak to some of these older games as well. But um, but just discovering all of that and the ways in which Elden Ring expands on that sense of discovery, where on the one hand it is limited to these dungeons that are designed to be experienced in very specific ways, and then expanding that to the bigger world, but where they're still, to your point, able to bring these teleporters in, and what the, what those what uh, those teleporters do, which I think is so critical and interesting to this type of game, is that it gives you these brief tastes of these very strange looking, very scary looking areas of the game early on. And it just tantalizes it. It excites it. It, it gives you something to, to look forward to and also to dread potentially. But in that process, it really enriches your experience of discovering the world in a way that I think is unique to Elden Ring at that point. When you were talking about dungeons that flip or dungeons that turn over, you actually reminded me a lot of the Legend of Zelda games. Specifically, I'm thinking about Link's Awakening. I haven't played all the way through Link's Awakening, but there's a very famous dungeon. I don't remember the name of it. It's the one where once you get to a certain point, you can smash different floors together like one of the floors sort of falls in the one in the bottom floors and that totally changes the dungeon i know that um it's been the case for a while that members of the from software staff will talk about how indebted they are to zelda and how that's something that's an important part of the games that isn't brought up enough and i absolutely think that's true especially playing elden ring i think the zelda dna is more more evident than ever especially considering that Zelda reinvented itself of Breath of the Wild, where it became more of like a wide-ranging physics puzzler slash Zen garden, rather than the kind of heavily dungeon-based experience that it was before. Now that uh, Breath of the Wild is sort of more off doing its own thing, uh, I think the indebtedness that Elden Ring has to those earlier Zelda games becomes more clear, because now that it's sort of lost... Now that Zelda is no longer in that space, you sort of have Elden Ring, I think it's like the clearest example of that particular strand of development. Like creating these sort of old-fashioned wizardry-style dungeons that... But then instead of exploring them wizardry-style, you're exploring them like in the vein of a more 
uh, modern concentrated Zelda-like experience. So you, you just said two things that I've been thinking about for the past several minutes and also previous to this. Um, and that is when I went down a mini sort of research hole on Kingsfield, again, I'm blaming Waypoint on this because they went and played, you know, uh, Patrick and Kato have been playing uh, Kingsfield 4. Um, and it kind of got me curious about what these games looked like before Kingsfield 4. So I looked up Kingsfield 1 through 3. And there are elements in those early games that look a lot like Zelda. Like I think there's some rupee-like, uh, you know, currencies and things like that that very much reminisce what a Zelda would look like. Um, and those early Kingsfield games definitely borrowed very heavily from wizardry as well, especially in that first person perspective, which incidentally Elder Scrolls also borrowed from initially. And as a side note, maybe we should play Daggerfall. I was, uh, you were talking about, you're talking about Morrowind. I think Daggerfall's the one <laughs> potentially. Um, anyways, that's a food for thought, uh, for a later pod. Oh, Adam was in a very exasperated way through his head back and uh, groaned while clutching his face in, in frustration. <laughs> well, you said what? What did you we say? Should, you we should should play Daggerfall. Yes. <laughs> um, so maybe maybe that isn't the choice. But I'm kind of curious what elicited that reaction. To be totally honest, but uh, anyway, Wizardry and Zelda, I think we're definitely at the root of from software working on Kingsfield. So it's, I think very appropriate that we would be talking about both of those things. Yeah. I want to also mention for people who aren't aware. So we've been talking about Elden Ring for a while and Elden Ring is a new game. Like uh, you may be familiar with some FromSoft games in case, and I'm sorry for taking so long to talk about this in case you don't know what wizardry is. Wizardry is a very old, very influential computer RPG about exploring dungeons that you often map yourself with a party of six people. It takes pretty heavily, it takes pretty heavy influence from Dungeons and Dragons. It very heavily emphasizes traps and exploration. A lot of games have borrowed from Wizardry despite the fact that Wizardry is so old and like very outdated in some ways. Uh, the battle system you see in games like Dragon Quest takes a lot of Wizardry influence. And again, in games like Elden Ring, even though they're groundbreaking in a lot of ways, you can still see some of the wizardry DNA in there and just the cruelty of their traps, how they might trap you in a room. They might put you through some hell that you accidentally step into. Like that sort of viciousness is part of the charm in that way. Now, the reason I reacted the way I did to Daggerfall is just because first off, it's so big. Second, I've heard it's very buggy. And third, that from what I've heard, that was like the era in, of Elder Scrolls, or rather than trying to create detailed spaces, they're just trying to make giant spaces where the point was making it as big as possible rather than having any kind of... But I mean, I think it would be interesting to go back to it just because it is such an ambitious project of its time, despite how weird and messy it is and maybe I, I know there are also mods as well that apparently do a good job at modernizing it without losing like the characteristics that make it interesting um i also if if we're talking about wizardry um it's worth also kind of maybe 
while we have time talking a little bit about some of the other influences in the game as well, I mean, like really famously, um, people on the team are a huge fan of Berserk. And so there's a ton of Berserk stuff. And the Berserk is a very popular Japanese dark fantasy comic that takes a lot of influence from uh, Western fantasy novels. Honestly, uh, playing through Elden Ring, I'm, I think a lot about the paucity of fantastical influence in a lot of these kinds of role-playing games. Like, I know um, when I think about computer RPGs, you have stuff like uh, the Elder Scroll games or Dragon Age or whatever, and some of those are pretty interesting what they what influences they choose to draw. But honestly, looking at something like Dragon Age, I'm kind of nonplussed by like how generic the fantasy is. And even in some even in some even in some later uh Elder Scrolls games, you just I mean Morrowind does have like kind of a nice sort of blend of kind of weirder horror fantasy stuff in there. But a lot of the later stuff feels a bit like reheated Lord of the Rings film trilogy stuff in a way I find kind of exhausting. Like something I... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard a lot of people pointing at Caleb and saying, oh, there's it's a little reminiscent, reminiscent of Morrowind and that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, I don't know whether it's that From Software just comes at Western fantasy from a different perspective or if just, like, the people who made Elden Ring just read more widely or like draw from a wider pool of influence from just like typical George R. R. Martin stuff. But I, I do appreciate that the fantasy in Elden Ring to me feels a lot grottier. There's less of a sense that they're just rehashing stuff from like Terry Brooks's Shannara books or the wheel of time or something. I said that specifically to spite Alex, by the way, because he's a huge Wheel of Time fan. And there's there's more of a sense they're like, oh, maybe they read like Tanith Lee or The Black Company or something. Uh, actually, uh, going back to Dia Lucina again, she did an interview with Cameron Hunzelman recently where she brings up Tanith Lee and uh, Lord Dunsany in their work. And frankly, I would not be surprised if at least like Hidetaka Miyazaki had... Of red Jort had read Lord Dunsany. I would not be surprised if he like read Japanese translations of the Black Company books. I don't know. Because there is like this sense of influence taken not just from like stories about elves and things, but like also weirder older stuff in a way that like speaking personally as someone who enjoys reading fantasy novels, but like sort of has had less tolerance for epic fantasy stuff over time it is nice for me when i get the sense that people have like a wider palette of things they like reading or talking about than just the same stuff that people just parrot over and over again that's fair um and that's actually i mean that's something that i think the dark souls and the souls games in general have managed to do from the beginning is that they feel a part of a western sort of fantasy narrative without necessarily feeling directly derivative of any one single thing. I mean, there's no, there's no elves, not really in any of these games, but there are in the Elder Scrolls games, whereas those feel somewhat more directly tied into that narrative structure. So 
Um, that that definitely is something that I mean. Of course, there are dragons in all of these games. There's a ring. There's a ring. Um, I will say as a as a quick side note to that, um, and it really does go to show how much of your impression of these games will depend on how well versed you are in um, the general sort of conversation or. or you know, just your depth of knowledge will always inform these things. Um, I made the um, the error of mentioning that I was playing Elden Ring to my parents, to which they were like, oh, Alex, tell us more about this Elden Ring thing. And I was like, well, well, hold up. If I have to tell you about Elden Ring, I have to tell you about the history of From Software and how we got to these games in the first place. So that went down a weird tangential rabbit hole. But suffice to say, eventually I showed them the trailer, uh, or maybe it was the opening sequence to Elden Ring. Either way, uh, their first reaction was, oh, so it's just Lord of the Rings, right? To which I, as Adam is also cringing right now, I was like, oh, no, that's so wrong. What is this? It's nothing like Lord of the Rings. It's completely different. What are you talking about? Um, I, I was very offended, uh, of course. But I could also appreciate how coming from a less nuanced perspective, you would that would be the, your closest point of reference. And you'd be like, well, there's dragons and there's rings and swords and sorcery. So it's Tolkien. I think you actually hit on something very important, which is that the Lord of the Rings has been regurgitated culturally so many times. I think it's lost some of the frisson and mystique it once had. Like, if you go back to the original Lord of the Rings novels, they're a pretty weird thing. They're like a thousand-page epic fantasy novel in one volume. Before, that was really a thing people wrote frequently, written by a guy who was kind of using it as a means of, like, composing his own made-up language. And, you know, over time... Oh, for sure. Alex pointed out as a response to World War One, and while Tolkien himself denied it, studies have been done about like there's a there's a good amount of uh, subtext in there if you want to go digging for it. Now, you know what a lot of what publishers eventually figured out was that while Lord of the Rings itself was extremely weird and was maybe by conventional standards not conventionally well written, let's say that if you were to kind of reprocess it and remake it as something with simpler vocabulary as a story with kind of more defined, uh, more kind of contemporary characters that you could make something that would sell better. So you had, um, the Shannara books by Terry Brooks. You had the wheel of time books for Robert Jordan. You just had this long succession of books. You had a dungeons and dragons, which, you know, Elden Ring, I think, definitely does bear a huge debt to, especially in terms of dungeon diving and character building and classes and things. But what, yes, and to, also to the degree that wizardry borrows heavily from Dungeons & Dragons, but also that Dungeons & Dragons took Lord of the Rings and gamified it. Like, uh, oh, wizards are no longer angels. Now they have fireballs. They, they throw fire. That becomes, like... A weapon they have rather than this numinous thing they draw upon that people don't really know anything about. So actually, this is a great tangent for us to talk about probably the next big thing in Elden Ring, and that is the mechanics, the numbers, the statistics that build the game 
the role-playing element of it, which comes from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and the reason I say this, something that I've been mulling over for a while now is it feels like an Elden Ring more so than any other game that, you know, from, from software has done that it is not as solely dependent on one, you know, stat line. So for instance, in the past, you might do a dex build, you might do a strength build, but you really probably were doing what, or a faith build or an intelligence build. You were probably doing one. Is it just me or does it feel like Elden Ring really wants you to do at least two? It wants you to do like maybe dex and arcane, or it wants you to do faith and intelligence, but it does feel like the focus that it requires of you is really on two of those stats. Um, and that's question one. Question two is also, we're probably going to have to address in a bit, is what our builds have been like in the game. But for for one, let's talk about um, the one versus two stats. So I can speak to my own personal experience. Um, so far, so I can't say what magic is like or what mixing like weapons and magic are like because I haven't actually tried using magic yet. And I also haven't tried using a faith build yet, which is to use uh, incantations, I suppose, right? Uh, my, the character I made the most progress with has been what in the Souls community is called a quality build, where you sort of put a roughly equal number of points in a both strength and dexterity. Um, I will say, if we're talking about, um, like you've said, having a mix of tools instead of just relying on one, what I've been doing so far, which has been an approach I think isn't working for me, is just making sure you have different tools for different situations. Like, I don't know how something like a quality build stacks up compared to other things in the game, like compared to people like uh, the prisoner who can use magic spells and also dual wield katanas or whatever. Like, that sounds pretty incredible. But I find that when I'm wandering through the world, all have a uh, great EP that you can poke things with. I may have also mispronounced EP. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. Epe. I'm I'm bad at pronouncing French stuff. It's a whole. There's a there's a backstory to that. Um, I have a Morning Star that does blunt damage, and I have a axe that does slashing damage and also uh, shoots out little waves of ice. And depending on the situation. I find myself switching between those different things. So for instance, if you're going up against skeletons, you take out your morning star. If you're going up against uh, knights on a horseback, you might take out your poking weapon and use it to poke the knight from afar. I think because Elden Ring is so sprawling and because the space is so much wider than it is in say the first Dark Souls, it does kind of uniquely lend itself to that kind of experience where just because you have a much wider range of challenges, it does kind of give jack of all trades more of an advantage than they typically have. Like if all you're good at is like hitting things with a big sword, it's not really going to help you if you go up against something that moves very fast, which you will find is wandering around in the world. But if you spec for different situations, and if you make sure to have different tools, then I think you're actually more successful all the time when it comes to preparing for those issues. Now, um, I 
I think that, let's see. I don't know if that's intended. I don't know if this is just like more of a consequence of like what kind of game it is and sort of how this played out. But I think if we want to bring accessibility into this as well, I think that in some ways maybe it is a little better that Elden Ring kind of gives you more flexibility. Like flexibility, as far as I know, has always been kind of the watchword of sort of Souls type games. You know, there are a lot of people who really prefer what Bloodborne brings to the table and what Sekiro brings to the table, and that it is much more directed. It is much more about you have one or two particular ways of solving problems, and it's all about being good at those ways, and the whole game is designed around those things. Elden Ring can't help but be messier because it gives you so many different ways to solve those problems so that the game itself... It can be a struggle sometimes for it to meaningfully like give you the opportunity to solve problems in all those different ways. At the same time, I think that the fact that it does give you that freedom or like, if you want to try to beat the game of magic, you can use magic. If you want to use swords, you can use swords. If you want to use swords and magic, you can do both. The fact that it allows that much, it gives you that much flexibility in a way I think does actually give people more tools to survive just because it um provides even though again it all kind of comes down to killing most of your interactions are just like fighting enemies at the very least it gives you a bunch of different ways to fight if you want unless you kind of customize your own experience around that and in fact almost requires while you're going through that you find new ways to face up the challenges that you meet along the way where you go, um, oh, huh, this thing I'm trying isn't working. What if I try this? It's frustrating, like, as someone who's played a bunch of these games, I feel like I'm trained to just whack my head against the wall over and over and try to win with the tools I have. But my experience and what I have sort of picked up listening to other people is the way to, the best way to do it is actually to try new things. It's to think of new tricks, to go somewhere else even. Like that to me is sort of this game's escape hatch in a way. Right. And so if we, yeah. No, so, so I, I'm stealing the mic for, uh, for a bit here because that was exactly my experience. I started playing this game very much like I had been playing other souls games. Um, in fact, my first, uh, experience in dark souls, I did a dex build. Um, and since then I went and I did different builds. I think, um, if I remember correctly, Dark Souls 2 was an int intelligence build for me, and um, Dark Souls 3 was a uh, faith build. So I did something a little bit different in both of those. Uh, can't really compare Bloodborne and Sekiro, so I'm not going to. Um, but in each of those, I had done something different. Now, I still have yet to do a strength build, truly, and I'm saving that for Demon Souls. I don't know why, but that's what my heart tells me, is I'll do a strength build in that game. So, But I went back to Dexterity for this one, and partially because I had this vision of doing dexterity and something else. And very quickly, the game gave me that something else. It was arcane because I wanted to do a blood build because I thought that was kind of a cool, you know, thing to do. Uh, of course, that was broken <laughs> at the beginning of the game. So I put a pin in that and I kind of started putting some points into intelligence for a bit. Maybe thinking I'd do some spell casting on the side. 
Um, and then eventually, once Arcane was fixed with the patch, I just went back to Arcane. Never really respect. The game gave me enough experience and enough levels to really um, kind of experiment in that early uh, phase. Quickly, Alex, explain to me, for listeners who may not understand, what is Arcane? Because I feel like a lot of the stats that we've talked about so far have been pretty self-explanatory, like... Uh... Faith is faith and like influences holy abilities, strength makes you stronger. Arcane is sort of confusingly worded, I feel like, despite the fact that its effects in the game are actually pretty clear. So as someone who's used it a lot more, I'd like you to explain to me exactly what that stat does. No, that's a great point. And it's I've actually had to bring up a reference just on the side because I know that the primary thing that I used it for was specifically bleed. Bleed as a as a status effect. Uh, and bleed weapons scale based on your arcane stat. And a lot of weapons that scale off of arcane like that will also scale off of dexterity. So there's a very sort of natural build that you can uh, sort of go towards where you pair those two um, statistics together. And that's kind of where I, I kind of got onto this train of thought where I feel like this game really encourages you to scale two statistics that there's a lot of weapon like there's there are a lot of weapons that scale on intelligence and dexterity or strength and uh, and intelligence or faith and you know so and that did happen in older games but i feel like the degree of choice in this one is is much higher to your point adam um you have many more tools to address the same issues um and but before i get on that so um, Arcane does a couple of other things as well. It also increases your discovery stat. So the rate at which items will drop from enemies that are defeated. Um, it will also apparently, and I'm reading this off of a list. I didn't actually realize this. It increases your holy defense and also, uh, increases your vitality. Interestingly enough, which increases your resistance to instant death. Did not realize that. Um, so that actually is news to me. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I did not realize it did that. Um, arcane weirdly enough is the most arcane stat line in this game. I feel like no one really knows what the heck it does. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty whether it actually uh, allowed scaling for, uh, frost effects as well. Um, but I think it's just bleed that it scales with. Um, I could be mistaken about that. Uh, but it really depends on the weapon you have equipped. So there are certain weapons in the game that will have scaling based on uh, arcane as well. The, the two notable ones that probably most people are talking about because they're two of the most broken weapons in the game in terms of how powerful they are, are, of course, Rivers of Blood, which is a katana that scales on both dexterity and uh, arcane and also does a blood loss hemorrhage effect and Eleonora's pole blade which is similar but a twin blade um and while rivers of blood is really broken uh i mean it's a really powerful solution to pretty much anything in the game um it also has kind of an interesting effect that is very similar to um uh, sekiro it's hard to believe that it's not a call back to that game uh but suffice to say um, my experience with the game. So I started off with a scimitar, very similar to to what I had done in, in uh, Dark Souls initially. And I got to a point and I was just like, I'm being boring. Why the hell am I using a freaking scimitar? There's so many cool weapons in this game. Um, I should be using something else, something that's more interesting. 
Um, at the around the same time, I ran into uh, probably one of the most challenging bosses I faced in this game, and it's not who you think. Um, I'm going to mention that name because I don't think it'll mean much to you, Adam, as far as a spoiler. It's Electo, the Black Blade Assassin, I think is her title. Um, she's one of the Everjail uh, sort of bosses that you can find throughout the game. Uh, I think the Crucible Knight is probably one of the first Everjail bosses that you might have faced. Fuck the Crucible Knight. That statement is so accurate. I If I don't have to fight another Crucible Knight again, there's so many. Like you, you're, you're just scratching the surface. There's more Crucible Knights. I'm so sorry. I hate them. They're so annoying. Um, so that's an accurate statement. <laughs> You've convinced me, Alex. El- Elden Ring was bad all along. I've seen the error of my ways. It's done. Crucible Knights are evidence. It's It's too much. Could you say that this is your crucible? <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't even dignify this that with a response. Understand, we have a microphone here that we were passing back and forth to each other. So I took the microphone from Alex just to say, I will not respond to your pun. Okay, I'm, I'm passing this back. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, hopefully, by the time we reach several episodes of doing this, knock on wood, uh, we will upgrade our setup to multiple microphones. But for now, uh, this is our reality. So with all that in mind, I'd like to go back to a topic that we broached earlier in this conversation regarding... I almost hesitant, I'm almost hesitant to bring this up. People in the video games community are obsessed with the future. Even when they're playing a certain game, they're always... Sorry. Yeah. Um, just no. I just really want to finish this. So okay. the Electo story. So yeah. because I ran into a, a very significant roadblock in Electo, where I just wasn't able, like a scimitar, just wasn't enough to to put enough damage into her quick enough. Now probably I could have experimented with a different Ash of War, but instead what I chose to do is I tried a Twin Blade. I was like, you know what? Let me try a different weapon than I've ever tried before. And I started experimenting with Twin Blades. And around the same time, I was watching some videos on YouTube from obviously Elden Ring because I'm obsessed with this game. And I saw someone use Eleanor's pole blade. And I was like, where the heck do you get that? Why don't I have this weapon? I quickly realized there was a quest line that I had kind of not done up until that point. I went back and I did it. I got the pole blade and it changed my whole relationship with this game. I made me a twin blade user for life. I mean, even before that, I was like, that is twin blades are awesome. And then I beat Electo and that was that. My understanding as well as someone who, despite the fact I've played a bunch of games in this series, I've never beaten any of them. My understanding is Elden Ring is much more flexible at letting your character sort of change their stats or sort of move the numbers around and improve or like weaken your particular characteristics compared to other games. That like you have more chances or like a higher number of chances to say, uh, I want to pick a new character. I want to try a new specialty. I mean, I, you know, the, again, the fact that you have weapons you sort of come to rely on and that you spend a lot of time improving and the fact that you have particular weapons you spend a lot of time improving, I think will, in this particular case, always limit exactly how much you can pivot. But I, I'm, I'm under the impression that in addition to having like, to sort of asking you to have a broad range of tools for different encounters, uh, Elden Ring also gives you more chances 
to uh, change yourself if you're in a position where you go, oh, I'm sick of this. I want to try this other thing. No, it's by far the most generous. I mean, so not also you're in Lyernia right now. Um, once you defeat the boss of the region, um, you will have access to respecking. So that's that's one. Respecking is available to you. Heck, you could you could actually walk around Stormvale Castle. So if you wanted to like beeline it to this boss in Lyernia, you totally can. And you completely avoid Stormvale. You can get respecking pretty quickly in the game. So and I almost feel like that's there primarily for people playing New Game Plus, to be honest, because I don't know that you really would want to skip Stormvale. There's a lot of really good content there, but the fact that you can is interesting. Um, so yeah, so respecking is very easily available. Now there's a limited number of times you can do respecking because the um the item that you need to enable each respec is i think limited per playthrough to a certain number but it's still pretty generous now that being said i did not feel the need to respec once even with kind of the false start i did in int uh, in intelligence i enjoyed a little bit of spell casting on the side occasionally it was nice to be able to shoot some magic missiles at people occasionally so uh or glintstone shards i suppose to be specific um so i never did respec during my playthroughs um i'm debating whether i might want to respec in my new game plus to try some dragon magic because i i need way more faith to do that but we'll see um but the other part of that is the um items required to uh the smithing stones or somber somber stones sort of so they're just somber smithing stones yeah um are fairly plentiful in game and it is more limited to the late game not necessarily end game that well though some are end game ish at least depends on what you define as the end game but um but pretty late in the game you will find enough um bell bearings to essentially be able to buy every single kind of smithing stone except for the final upgrade so if you want to go to plus 25 or plus 10 for the summer line of of upgrades you do need uh since it's like an ancient dragon smithing stone or somber whatever though those are again limited um so you do have to reserve those final upgrades for the you know the items that you really like but you can get anything to like just within an inch of that pretty easily and i think it did incentivize me to try out some new things that i might not have i have a flail that i upgraded pretty significantly and also came in handy because um item you know weaknesses are so important in this game um you can cakewalk through a lot of the game with bleed but let me tell you if you relied on bleed like i did you get to the final couple of bosses and you're completely out of luck at that point um, so I did definitely struggled. I struggled a bit more, weirdly enough, with some of the endgame bosses that I've actually heard referred to as being kind of cake by some. And then I did not have as much trouble with the dreaded, like apparently strongest of all souls bosses that people have been talking about. Uh, who's Millennia? I don't think I need to hide that from it. I, that's yeah. I think everyone knows who Millennia is because it's been talked about to death. I did not struggle with her nearly as much because. I had access to um, Twin Blades, particularly Eleonora's Pole Blade, which very easily can stagger, um, you know, and combine that with the summon, the um, Spirit Ash, 
uh, we were I was able if you time it correctly between you and your spirit ash you can basically stun lock her pretty successfully especially during her first phase and I mean is that is that easy mode because I use the spirit summon that's another question we should talk a little bit about difficulty level in this game as well but um, since you brought up cheesing, um, I think that is sort of an interesting thing to talk about just because my particular perspective when it comes to the Elder Scrolls games, not Elder Scrolls games, I yeah. meant Elden, <laughs> Elden, Elden Scrolls, no, Dark Souls. So, okay, here's my experience with Dark Souls. I play Dark Souls. I love Dark Souls. I get to the Copper Demon. I follow someone on Twitter who likes the Copper Demon who says this is a great boss encounter. I strongly disagree. I dislike the Copper Demon. The Copper Demon is terrible. This is who the Copper Demon is, in case you don't know who the Copper Demon is. The Copper Demon is a horrible goat-faced man with cleavers who has many dogs. Uh, the way the encounter goes is you walk into the room, you hear bark, bark, bark. The dogs jump out of nowhere and kill you. This happens over and over until you figure out how to beat the dogs. And when you take on the Copper Demon, if the Copper Demon kills you, you have to take out the dogs again. This happens over and over. Now, what I've heard, people would say the way they beat the Copper Demon is, apparently, at some point in the past, if in Dark Souls, if you go up to the area around the Copper Demon, to perhaps a wall, and you take out a firebomb, you can just throw those over the wall until the Copper Demon dies. Now, I don't know how feasible that is. I'm not sure if that was a bug or if they were just making stuff up. But to me, that realization was the key to understanding that as much as people like to talk about dark these sorts of games as fair and balanced, or as much as they like to talk about them as being real tests of skill, there is no way to cheat an encounter in Elden Ring, I think. If you beat an encounter, it's beaten. If you do it with friends, if you do it with a giant laser, if you do it with a spoon, if you do it with a sword, that's all on you. However you win is how you win, and, that, and that's fine. Um, I frankly can't even imagine playing through one of these games with the assumption that there's a correct way that you have to do everything. So I think they're, they're simply not designed that way. As much as I think a lot of thought goes into how these things are constructed, they're always just messy and unfair enough that I just don't think things are always evenly tilted in your favor. If you find some sneaky way to overwhelm the sort of Rubes Goldberg machine of pain that its makers have created for you, that's fine. Whatever works is, I think, the intended experience. So I, I, have, a, I have a very direct response to that, but before I do that, I want to take a very quick moment to just say, fuck dogs period in all of the souls games in bloodborne and sekiro dog enemies are my least favorite they can just ugh. i want to take a moment to point out that there's a small black cat in this room and i think that alex is saying this <laughs> specifically as a courtesy to our guest here uh so that uh our his uh friend citri doesn't think that he's biased in any way but no, it's not that. This hatred predates Citri and quite honestly is born of having died so many damn times to those stupid... The, the dogs just suck in these games. I'm sorry. They... they ugh. I have a 
theory that whoever's worked on these games must love cats and hate dogs because other than Sif, there's a very, which is like a wolf to begin with, not really a dog. Uh, most dog characters are all just awful, disfigured, and just, yeah, ho- horrible. Except for the burial tree. No, the the, ur- the burial tree watchdog, the urd tree watchdog. Those are great and unimpeachable. It's called a watchdog. Just, Alex is saying it's a cat. It is not a cat. Anyway, I, I wanted to make that. Um, I just wanted to say I love those things, despite the fact that they're terrible and their heads turn around like owls, not to besmirch owls here we have some owl fans in the area but um yeah no dogs dogs in these games they're they're not fun um if only because uh the bleeding dogs deal like thousands of points of damage to you per frame per second at the moment but anyway yeah so anyway we we digress a smidge but um to the point of cheesing in these games um i think if the game enables you to use tools in a particular area and you find a creative way to do it um it's totally fair game can you do can you use a summon in this fight can you get a npc summon those are all legitimate tools that have been given to you and i have even more so grown to believe in this with Elden Ring because Elden Ring is very purposeful in the number of times they give you challenges where you don't have the benefit of those summons. There are essentially non-boss uh, health bar bosses, which is a kind of weird thing that happens in these games if you go to the end games, usually where you will just run into bosses that they don't trigger the boss health bar, but they're effectively bosses, some of whom might actually be even be even more difficult in some ways um, than what we termed a normal boss. Some of these don't enable you to do summons at all, so you have to do the battle all on your own merit. And more to the point, Everjails very clearly do not allow summons of any kind. They do not allow for you to use any quote-unquote easy mode. You just have to do that stuff on your own. It's just you, your skill, whatever build you have, and the boss in front of you. And I think the game is very purposeful in how it presents you with those challenges. And if you undertake those challenges and you're able to overcome them, and even if you're not, then that's fine. But the game is clear in not giving you those options at that point. So when it does give you those options, the game clearly wants you to use those. And more importantly when it comes to the spirit summons, there are actual quest lines that emerge from these spirit summons that I felt more connected to because I used the spirit, excuse me, the spirit summons. I don't want to spoil this, but there are a few spirit summons in the game that if you have, you there's like small bits of story late in the game that you can get, which are really cool. I wanted to say, I can't believe we've talked for the amount of time we have without even bringing up Spirit Ashes until now. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but that is the kind of game Elden game is. It's a kind of game, sorry, this is the kind of game that Elden Ring is. Which There's so many moving parts, some of which some might feel extraneous sometimes, that you can just not even bring it up and still have a ton of other really important or interesting things to talk about. I mean, if also, if we're talking about drawing elements from previous stuff, I mean, not only can you perhaps draw a line between the spirit ashes and Elden Ring that help you like kind of summon creatures, 
with something like Pokemon or going back in time, uh, Shin Megami Tensei, the demon summoning game, or uh, back in the day, Dragon Quest V, the Super Nintendo RPG where your character is a wandering nomad who can have monsters join his party. But going back to Wizardry, uh, one of the Wizardry games, Wizardry 4, Proving Ground of the Mad Overlord, the single meanest Wizardry game in the entire series lets you summon monsters. You uh, create a party of creatures that specifically is drawn from enemies from earlier Wizardry games. In the same way, Elden Ring kind of builds up a roster of creatures you can summon in a way that almost kind of feels like a Dragon Quest or like a Dungeons and Dragons. Like you have your um, Kaiden swords, you have your Potmen. I mean, honestly, the pot the Potmen feel a bit like uh, slimes in Dragon Quest. And like, oh, they're like the cute little creatures who live in their own world and sometimes they're mean and sometimes they're nice, you know. Um, so it's sort of like an additional whole aspect that this game borrows and fleshes out. And um, again, it's also a way that it's an, it's a means that people can use to get through encounters because you don't need to use spirit ashes, but there are, the game does like pretty heavily regiment when you can use them, but it's sort of, again, a tool it uses to balance these things out. So if you do, if you are put in the situation where it is like supposed to be more challenging for just yourself, you are given these opportunities to use tools to try to push the tide back in your favor. And also more important, and also more importantly, I apologize. A cat just jumped out of my lap. Um, but more importantly, it enables you to do something that is so pivotal in this game, and that is roleplay. the The choice of which spirit ashes you become attached to, and, and even how you later are able to relate those to the story, um, are so cool. One of okay, so as a as a complete side note, and I don't care that this is a spoiler because it's been spread around the internet already, and I don't really think it's a spoiler. So one of the spirit ashes in the game, Latena, the Albinoric woman, uh, archer. I don't know what her name is. Awesome. Yeah, she's great. I love her. Um, and she actually does have a bit of a quest line that you probably have gotten the beginning to now, Adam. So, um, that's not a spoiler for me to say, but, um. People have discovered that in-game, there is a very interesting behavior that she engages in if you bring her near a giant wolf. The Spirit Ash will literally mount a giant wolf that comes near her and use it to ride around and shoot arrows. Which, without that, she's a stationary archer because she cannot use her legs. But whether as an accident, you know, whether it's a bug or a feature, who knows? You know, it could just be that the model they use is the same as some later game enemies that would do the same thing. And it's just as simple of an explanation as that. But the the excitement that I felt when I learned about this and that people had when they were like, holy crap, she will mount a wolf and just start riding it around. It just, you know, it's very limited in terms of where you can use it in game. There's very few places where you can both summon a spirit ash and there are wolves that she could actually engage with. But just the fact that that exist, existed and that was a small little nugget that people found and were excited about was so cool to me and that's very unique to this game. This also gets at what I think is a central tension in Elden Ring between the parts of it 
that are very sort of parsimoniously or rationally constructed to reuse as much stuff as possible and the parts that are just very silly in how reckless they are with just creating small details that people might just never see. Like on one hand, this is a game that not only just borrows models and animations wholesaler, wholesale from earlier from software games and just crams them all in as a means of filling its map with stuff, um, it, but it's also a game that is completely content with having small little details that people might just completely miss. Frankly, it's, you know, with the way that these sorts of games are constructed, so much money and time and effort are put into building out these worlds that frankly, it's just not cost effective to create bits that you're not going to see. I mean, you know, there are studios that kind of make this a point of pride, like something like um, when CD Projekt Red made The Witcher 2, the fact that you have just two separate paths in that game where sort of taking one locks you out of the other is something that was kind of a point of pride for that studio and was mentioned in the coverage of it, that they had created a setting where instead of like giving you the ability to experience everything, they deliberately lock you out of some of it as a means of kind of making your experience a bit more unique. Now, most games I think that are made these days go against that, um, partially because I think there are a lot of people who don't like the experience of being shut out of stuff, but also because to spend so much time and resources making something and then just making it inaccessible I think just goes against a lot of what people think is useful or valuable. But I do think there is something to the fact that even though Elden Ring is comp probably compromised in a lot of ways, even though its creators are not able to control all of it, that there are always things that slip through the cracks or probably compromises they have to make to get them out the door. And even though it's deliberately constructed in such a way that it does reuse things, so that you just spend more time in that world. It's still able to just have whole extended detours you might just never find, and it's fine with that. Um, I, I honestly get the sense that when you have people in the game development community who are sort of bewildered or frustrated by the fact that Elden Ring is so popular, despite the fact that it is what it is, I think it is like in part because of this because whether purposefully or just like through mismanagement, um, these games are designed in a way that is meant to be mysterious and seemingly all-encompassing. Um, in the same way, if we're talking about Elder Scrolls games, I've heard people say, why are Elder Scrolls games always given a pass for being so buggy? Like, these are games where you put a bucket over someone's head and they won't notice when you steal things. Like, why is it that people laugh at that, but in another game, if there's a bug like that, people say, oh, this game is busted, who cares? Like, this is bad, right? Like, what gives something like Elder Scrolls a pass? And I think this it is this sort of numinous quality it is this kind of numinous quality in a way that there's they're trying to make something that isn't just and not even saying this is better or worse. It's not a qualitative judgment. 
It's more just that's creating a different kind of experience, a different kind of process. It's less about being wholly comprehensible and more about a kind of sensory affect or like a, a sensation it's trying to create. No, I think that's, it's really down to intent because it's, if the game, the way it means for you to interact with the world is so broad as it is in the Elder Scrolls games that it doesn't break the fundamental interaction with the game, then it it can be made a joke of it's a, it's a feature. It's not a bug. It's, you know, just a fun thing you can see in the world rather than it's something that more seriously can impede your progress or, or interaction with the game um, as it might in games that are more linear, for instance, but because of the kind of, you know, open format of a scrolls game, it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to feel as, as deal breaking. And I think now that um, Elden Ring opens sort of the floodgates more significantly in that sense than previous souls games, I think you can have a similar experience um, but as a, as a quick side note, so now that we've been talking for nearly two hours, I think we should take a quick break just to get something to drink, walk around for a bit. If you've been sitting for two hours, I think it's just general good advice to do that. Um, we're probably going to cut this out of the, of the pod, but let's take a quick break and come back. Does that sound good? Or did you have any final points to make before we do that? Cool. All right, I'm just going to start recording back up again, and we might cut some of this. Um, I'm just passing off to you. Yeah, so uh, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask. Now, honestly, I feel like people who talk about video games live way too much in the future. They're always talking about what might come next. Anytime they're playing a game, I feel like a lot of the time they're saying, but what might the sequel look like? I'm kind of curious. So what the heck does a sequel to Elden Ring look like? Like, like we talked about Elden Ring as a grafting it's everything from the history of from software jammed into one game. There's sort of too much of it on purpose. But so then like what's the sequel? Just like more stuff jammed in? Is it like a more refined version of that? Is it just a larger version of that? I feel like either one of those probably isn't gonna live up to like what exactly Elden Ring is. Uh, Alex, I'm curious to know what might a follow-up to this look like or is the correct decision maybe to just go in a totally different direction and do something else? So I have a couple of thoughts about that. One has to do with the mechanics that this game really sort of streamlines or introduces, and that's all the ashes of war or the spirit ashes, I think enable a couple of things that are similar but different from what we've seen before. So with ashes of war, we see some of the weapon abilities of older games really streamlined in a way that really enables you to, you know, do you want poison on your weapon? Do you want some fancy like spin spinning slash or whatever? And it gives you more customization and more sort of input on how you want certain things to match your character build across different weapons or what have you. And I think that's a really cool element of the game that I've really enjoyed. I think with uh, spirit ashes, you get, um, again, more customization and more of an ability to um, decide what summons you take with you throughout the whole game. And is there a story there? Now, I do think they could have done more with Spirit Ashes. I do think that 
you, know, you have one or two or three that have something meaningful attached to them that, you know, you get a little bit of a quest line or a little bit of a, you know, Easter egg here and there. Uh, there's a couple of the legendary ones that actually have like huge story importance. Um, you just got to read their descriptions and they're like connected to millennia and, you know, like they're really cool, like situated in the, in the, in the story of the game. I wish they would have done more there. So to sort of answer that, I think what a future installment could do is really do more to weave some of the elements like the spirit ashes more so into the NPC interactions and quests. I think Latena is really the only one that kind of goes from NPC to Spirit Ash quite the way that she does. There is another one, sort of, but I don't necessarily want to get into the, uh, what are they called? The puppets or the dolls? Like that's another Spirit Ash adjacent. They're basically Spirit Ashes, but there's another mechanic of how they're obtained. And um, well, that's, I think, I think it's spoilers for you right now. So we're going to stay away from that. We can come back to that later. But uh, anyway, I do wish they would have done more there. So that's something that I would like to see fleshed out in a future game. But that's sort of an answer. What a follow-up might look like. I think most likely what we're going to see is another open world type game from them that might not be a Souls game. I actually have this idea exactly what someone just flashed as a card i was i was gonna say armor core i think we're gonna see an open world armor core i think that's the next game we're probably going to see from from software it's gonna probably have some elements of the open world that we saw in elden ring but it's gonna be an armored core game so mechanically it'll probably end up being very different but i mean it's already been there's been rumors there's people flashing like written note paper uh at us telling us that armored core is it but i I think that's what it's going to be and i think that will be the follow-up it won't be a direct thing and it'll be elements but it's going to be an armored core game i think i would also like for a follow-up not to be an elden ring kind of thing but to be something separate like that like an armored core game would be cool or even not even an sort of Elden Ring style armored core game, but even an armored core game more in the vein in the earlier games. Like even if you had like uh, individual missions or where you had, um, it was there was like a much larger focus on switching out parts and customizing for individual encounters and that kind of thing. I mean, hopefully they bring back the composer of those games as well, because like, even though there is some pretty good music in the from software games post uh demon souls and dark souls i think the composer for the earlier from games like as avant-garde as they could be i think kota hoshino is the guy who did that music he's like incredible um i mean you look at stuff like uh evergrace that has really interesting music, even if it's kind of amateurish in some ways, but the armored core games, especially that soundtrack is such a strong part of their identity and to replace it with more kind of generic techno or like fantasy strings would be a huge loss for me or even something like, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but that VR game that from software did a little while ago, I think Darasine or even like a survival horror game like Kuon. Like people kind of were wondering for a while if uh, Sekiro would be something in that vein. And at the end of the day, Sekiro is more of like uh, Tenchu or like uh, Souls game. 
but for FromSoft to try a survival horror kind of thing, I think would be pretty cool, especially considering how good they are with kind of freaky horror stuff at this point. Now, I'm a little nervous that from software is just going to keep going back to the well of Elden Ring because that is their most popular game by far. And just the way the market works is that they'll probably be driven to make more of what was successful for them. I am a little nervous, like if from software becomes this GL of Elden Ring, if they're just like reiterating that over and over again, that that kind of mystique that infects Elden Ring and kind of makes it so varied and numinous is going to start leaking out and make it boring instead. I don't know if like in a couple of years we'll be at a stage where we're back where some people were with the later Dark Souls games where people are saying, oh, we've seen this already. Like show us something we haven't seen. And again, like some of those other games that weren't Elden Ring like that VR experiment I mentioned didn't really seem to sell. I don't know. I mean, maybe Elden Ring gives them more freedom to experiment with the new resources they have, or maybe they double down and just make the thing everyone likes over and over again. I don't really know. I mean, frankly, I'm not even sure if like, I mean, I know like if we're talking about modern developers, Square Enix right now, as poorly managed as they seem to be, at least like seems to be investing in having weird little independent projects like say dungeon encounters for instance if from software was to give their developers more leeway to try that kind of stuff to make smaller games build around the kinds of like weird old influences they clearly like i think tons of cool stuff could come out of that but are they gonna have the chance to do that i don't really know um alex is there anything more you'd like to say on that no absolutely so um I think Dark Souls and really the Souls games as a whole give us kind of a baseline of expectation for what an Elden Ring 2 might look like if we get one. I mean, the the, the line of iteration from like even Demon Souls to Dark Souls to Dark Souls to, to Dark Souls 3 is probably what we would have to expect. They seem to have a pretty cohesive understanding of if this is a Dark Souls game, then it must have certain coherent elements that carry through from one to the other. So I wouldn't expect an Elden Ring to go too f- or uh, Elden Ring 2 to go too far from what we've already seen here. Um or at, at least not any further than a Dark Souls 2 did to a Dark Souls 1. Um so I really wouldn't expect more iteration. Now what I now here's the question, is that a good idea for them to do? I don't think so i think the audience right now is so burnt out now i don't want to say burnt out i think we've pushed or rather from software has pushed its audiences plural both old and new to the limit of what they can get out of the dark souls formula for the time being we need a bigger break i think before i mean shoot man i might be reluctant myself to dedicate any significant amount of time to another one of these games it's just it's a lot it's it's frankly it does get repetitive and having experienced these games in a span of the time that i have that's a lot now what i would be excited about is a reformulation like what we saw with sekiro because sekiro was just similar and different enough and the ways that it forced you to play the game differently down of, you know, you had to parry in that game. 
I don't do pairing in any other. I've not really done pairing in any other Souls game. I just suck at it. But I was able to do it in Sekiro, and I damn well finished that game. I got good enough to do it. And it doesn't really give you any choices. Like, that game, you cannot cheese very much in it. You you really do have to parry things and your reaction time. You have to learn that pattern, and you do it. Um, so, but I also don't know how much stamina I have necessarily for that, or if I would want something else in the world or lore to incentivize me to engage with a game that difficult. And I don't think another medieval-themed game like this would be enough it'd be too much of the same i think you know the older you know souls heads would probably be bored by that there is a newer audience here though that is interacting with these games for the first time but realistically what they're going going to do at this point they're going to go play demon souls because that's available at least on ps5 a lot of people who've played this game on ps5 are going to go to that other people are probably going to go to dark souls 3 i think there's going to be a rediscovery of the older games that goes along with this new one but I don't think that the next game should be too similar to this because I think it'll, it, we've reached peak, the, the peak point of what that can be. And I think beyond this, it will no longer be the critical darling that it is because people are going to be bored of it. I would say if we're giving more general statements about Elden Ring and how it succeeds and what it is, I feel like more or less Elden Ring is really concentrated video game it's not any more than that and it's not any less than that elden ring has perspective it has themes it has characters that some people like it has really memorable encounters and like this these great moments of discovery but at its core it really is a game where you sit down and go this time i'm going to use magic or this time i'm going to use that sword or this time i'm going to use that spear in the same way that to this day there are still people who will like install Baldur's Gate on their computers and say never played as a bard. Bards are really kind of maybe underpowered but I want to try it or I never had this character. It's like this isn't like a Zelda Breath of the Wild kind of thing where I feel like the appeal is just passively existing in these spaces and just being in that world in a kind of holistic natural sense. I don't think that Elden Ring is like that carefully constructed enough to give you that feeling of like peace and place. But there are a lot of people who I mean, you know, the old cliche as much as like games journalists always have to move on to the next thing for their jobs. A lot of people, the way they experience video games is they have their game. They come back to it might be Pokemon, it might be like Heroes of Might and Magic, it might be Overwatch or Counter-Strike or something. That's all they do. They'll install mods, they'll like pick it up again once in a while, they'll just have it on a bunch of different systems they own. That's their whole experience of video games. I think it's very possible that for this generation of, I mean, not even generation as in games consoles, but just generation of kids, generation of adults, Elden Ring will be that game for them. They'll boot, they'll, they'll beat it up, they'll say, Hey, I never like tried a faith build. Uh, what if you are a confessor? What if you start as a wretch? Um, they'll keep discovering new things. And yeah, once uh, Alex pointed out, once the mod community figures things out, like there are there are already some pretty. And this is coming from someone back in the day. I thought it was interesting that there weren't that many Dark Souls mods, but tons of Elden 
tons of Elder Scrolls mods, and I was thinking, oh, well, that's because, that's like... No, so I, I'm glad you brought up mods, or you know, you mentioned it because that's what made Skyrim so like you know successful in the long run was that the mod community really picked up that game. And I mean, and it's not just that one. I think Oblivion and to some extent Morrowind. I mean, all of those games were really embraced by modders. But I think Skyrim was really the one that. I mean, I remember doing a lot with mods as well, like playing mods. Uh, with, with with Skyrim, it was just there was so much that the community did, uh, and there was a whole community build up around. I think it probably still is. I mean, there, I think there's still someone out there building Morrowind off of Skyrim. Um, like there's there there's a t- yeah. Um, so I I think you're right. I think Elden Ring gives a platform that I mean I've already seen people put freaking Honda Accords into the game so you can be an Accord so that they can make the joke that it's you know your Millennia's Accord and or um, get them confused. It's Millennia and well I'm too tired at this point. But anyway, there are too many M names in this game. Lots of M's. Yeah. G R M's. No, I mean, I think for every Dark Souls game at this point, at the very least, there's at least one mod that's pretty interesting. Like Dark Souls, especially. Dark Souls 3, there's a very ambitious one called Cinders. Dark Souls 2, I'm not as sure of, but I'm sure that at least a couple of them. I mean, honestly, I feel like just the way that Elden Ring is constructed, where there's so many giant open spaces or small caves full of interchangeable things, that's think, that to me really makes it feel like there's a lot of room for people to expand on and say... Well, how about we put this stuff over here? What if we expand this NPC storyline? What if we make this bigger, make this smaller? Maybe like if people are sick of like, uh, I don't know, in- undulating tree spirits or you just say, let's just mod get- gets rid of all of them or places them something else. Now that all kind of depends on what tools there are and how flexible the game is. It could be that the game's a giant mess behind the scenes, like based on all the uh, code that people have pulled out of it i'd suspect that this whole thing was sort of thrown together and sort of released a little before it was ready so i'm not sure like how easily moddable it is but i think it's definitely probably the case that just because this game is just way bigger than any game in this series has ever been and because those earlier games already had such a dedicated fan community between those two things it could very well be at least for the pc version we'll see a lot of people kind of tinkering with it for years and that's definitely exciting to me just because, again, like it's the community around sort of from software's titles that has made them very interesting. And so I think for this one, people are going to continue more than ever to keep kind of building out their own little tunnels inside this thing. And we're forgetting one. We're forgetting one important thing. We still haven't gotten DLC. We're definitely getting DLC for this game. I cannot imagine a world in which we got DLC for basically all the Dark Souls games, and we're not going to get DLC for Elden Ring, considering how successful it has been. And that's not even accounting for the possibility that we might still get another patch that, you know, just reveals that the game was still incomplete, even, you know, a month and a half after release, or a month and a half, roughly. But maybe by the time anyone listens to this, it'll be two months, but still um so 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 we i don't know that we've yet seen the final form of elden ring in any sense because i mean it's weird to think of dark souls 2 now without scholar of first sin 
because that is the definitive edition of that game, arguably, that people play these days, and that was not what people experienced at first. Now, granted, that was arguably a broken game on release, depending on your perspective, but... Um, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I know, which is why I'm I'm not yeah. saying definitively that, yeah, so Adam's saying that people will fight for that initial version, and I think that's, that's a valid point. I, you know, the argument that it was maybe too difficult was an argument that some made but not others um but either way i think people might look to elden ring in its initial state and say that this was a broken game and we actually don't we're too early in the process right now to know what the final form of this game is going to look like uh there might be quests i mean it definitely feels like there's quest lines that are still not finished um that might be finished by dlc or additional we, we patches we just don't know i mean literally patches we just don't know So just to wrap up, um, I have a couple of questions I want to ask Alex. And if Alex wants to ask me what I think of those questions, that's fine too. So here's question number one for you about Elden Ring. Who is your favorite character in Elden Ring? Oh, that's a hard one. So I can tell you that I definitely liked the Ronnie and... um, um, Blyde, uh, yeah, Blyde, Blyde, Blyde. I, I'm not sure actually. I actually hear different pronunciations in the game itself, so I'm super not sure based on that. But um, I definitely like those two a lot, and I that is the ending I pursued, um, which apparently is one of the most popular endings. I think that people have, and it's not the main ending, which is fascinating to not see the main ending as the most achieved, even in terms of the, the game's achievements. I think that's fascinating. Um but I will say I also really like Aurelia, the jellyfish. Um, one of the spirit summons in the game, I think she's great. And the game does give you a little bit more to sort of like understand about her later on, where I think it does make her into a pretty cool character. And um, I've seen some people meme that she's best girl in the game, and I would agree. I really love Aurelia. Um, but... Above all of those, I'm going to give the stupidest meme answer. That is the Mimic tier. And, and and I'll explain why. It has a lot to do with my own playthrough of the game. So as much as I really like... Okay, so bottom line, I like Ronnie a lot as an actual serious answer, as an NPC. Uh, I think the tragedy of Blyde and EG, her like work counselor, is really compelling. I really love that. Um, Alexander also has a really good quest line as does weirdly Diallos. I think he's probably the character that I had the biggest like 180 on from hating to really being moved by where he ends up. Um, so some of those are some of the NPCs that I really related to, but for the dumb answer, mostly because of my own playthrough and because of some of the, uh, folks that joined me on my playthrough and we made jokes about the mimic tier being a crackhead because the mimic tier is so aggro and will particularly after the latest patch will just mindlessly attack everything in living sight no care in the world of, as to whether it gets hurt no dodging it's just you know this the joke being of course it just goes in you know like a high on crack completely like disregarding any sense um and that just became kind of a bit of a joke during my own playthrough of the game um that i've really enjoyed so that's that's an element of sort of role playing that this game enabled me to have and a relationship with the game that was unique to my playthrough and the people that watched me play the game that i thought was very cool 
and it's something that's very unique to Elden Ring because there's, you know, yeah, sure, you can summon Solaire a couple of times in the original Dark Souls, and maybe that's cool, and people definitely attach to that character, but the fact that there's something unique to my playthrough and how I relate it to the Mimic tier that's unique to, to how I played the game and, you know, the jokes that, you know, I made with your friends while we were playing the game, um, that's really cool. So that's, to me, is my favorite interaction and favorite kind of, let's call it NPC. I love I love Ronnie's design. I think her big hat is really cool. At the same time, I haven't gotten far enough in the game to spend a lot of time with her. So I guess technically I can't say that she's my favorite character. So instead I'll defer to Alexander just because he's a cool pot guy who is your friend. And I think that's really neat. He's sort of like, as much as Dark Souls is famous for having a lot of these. Have you got the Jarberg yet? I I have gotten the Jarberg. Jarberg is great. Alex said, have you been to Jarberg? Yes, I have been to Jarberg. Jarberg is excellent. Um, as much as Dark Souls is famous for characters who are like, he, 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 you are a mere tarnist who does not understand the truth of this vast and complex world. <laughs> or something. It also has a lot of characters who are just like, cool and just chilling out there and going yeah it's a hard life out here we're just doing our best and alexander i think is a great addition to that roster of characters as well as being a giant strong pot man which is also pretty nice i also completely forgot to mention roderica and uh, the uh, the blacksmith uh, i'm blanking on his name right now but uh, they're also really good. And Roderica, I think, is the, in my opinion, the best take on the Crestfallen Knight. Because when you first meet her, she is, you know, has, she has given up. She's lost her purpose in life. She is a coward by her own admission and unable to, you know, sort of fulfill the purpose that she feels that she had alongside her companions up until that point. But then is able to find new purpose. And unlike some of the other Crestfallen Knights, I think is more fulfilled by that purpose rather than it just being taking up arms and fighting you. In her case, it's becoming your spirit tuner and like helping you commune with these spirits in a way that makes them stronger. And it, it, it feels more meaningful, but also because she forms a relationship with another character in the game. And I think those two characters give each other meaning. And I, and that's something that I've really enjoyed about the quest lines in this game. I think you see more characters interact with each other in the tapestry of the game, which I think makes for more interesting storytelling, which I think has been so cool about this game is that y y the quest lines are not just these solitary, you know, through lines for one person, but rather it shows how everyone impacts everyone else. Um, that's something else I would love to see more of is more complexity to those quest lines, um, you know, and how all the NPCs interact in future games. Here's question number two, and this is going to be a little niche, so I apologize for this. If Elden Ring was a fantasy novel or a series of fantasy books, which one would you say it is? Is it more of like a Brandon Sanderson style novel? Is it a George R. R. Martin style novel? Is it a, um, I don't like, you know, a Tanith Lee kind of novel or Guy Gavriel K? Uh, do your best. So, I mean, that's a tough thing to answer because the easy answer is, well, is George R. R. Martin because he co-wrote the game. But it's such a weird game because you can see the George R. R. Martinisms. Like, you see some of that in the 
the sort of repetition of names. You see some of that in, well, let's put it this way. There's a lot of in-family drama to an extent that we really haven't seen in, in other you know, Souls games. Like, it just feels very George R. R. Martin in the way that there's a lot of court intrigue and a lot of the backstory, the more you learn, uh, you know, about how it all fits together, it feels like a George R. R. Martin story. Um, there's also a really funny line. Uh, I don't know if Martin had anything to do with this or not, but um, one of the, uh, the NPCs in the game, the Blackguard. Uh, oh, also, side note, I can tell you who my least favorite NPC is, hands down. The Dung Eater. That guy can rot in hell. But he's so cool. He has a cool name. I haven't met him yet. Oh, he's awful. He okay. he, he just despicable. Un yeah. Um, Adam just said that he has a cool name and he hasn't met him yet, so can't pass more of a, a opinion beyond that. But no, this guy is just like completely awful, like uh, complete degenerate. But anyway, um, neither here nor there. But um, so I think there's a very sort of George R. R. Martin flavor to this game that you do see his his handprint the more you sort of delve into the story. I think as a fantasy novel, I have to really give this some serious thought. Um, I don't know. I, I will say this. It's the type of fantasy novel that I feel like it's a standalone one. It's not a series. It's a, it's one big hefty tome, probably like 600 to 800 pages but it's one standalone thing. And that actually rules out a lot of fantasy writers because there's not a lot of them who would be willing to ultimately do that. Um, I don't know. I have to give that some more thought. I, I, I can tell you what my gut wants me to say, but I'm not actually familiar enough with her writing to be actually be able to really give that answer. So it, it, it would, it, I, someone could just correct me on this. So I, I'm just not going to say it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that to me until I read something by this author. Well, Alex thinks I'm going to take a guess. I am also going to cheat. I feel like there's sort of bits and pieces of a lot of different writers in Elden Ring. There's some bits that are very... We brought up Tolkien before, and we said that Elden Ring wasn't necessarily solely Tolkienian, but I think there is some Tolkien in there, if only because there's a ring in it, and it's all about the ring being shattered and different people taking possession of the ring. And you trying to reunite the ring or destroy the ring or whatever. Um, so that that is definitely in there. There's some stuff that almost feels older. Like um, I brought up uh, Laura Dunsany, as Dialacina mentioned in her recent um, interview with uh, Exchange of Letters of Brandon with uh, Cameron Kunzelman on Elden Ring. I think you could probably read some Dunsany in there. I would even say like... Uh, E.R. Edison and his uh, The Worm Aruboros, which is a very early fantasy novel that I believe inspired Tolkien. You could say that might be in there as well. Uh, I haven't read any of Lovecraft's fantasy stuff, like the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, for instance. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of that in there. Um, and frankly, like... Uh, I wouldn't say that Elden Ring is like constructed in the way that reminds me of like quote unquote literary fantasy per se, like stuff that's aiming for something more nuanced and like a big thousand page fantasy novel genre brick. But there are parts that remind me a little bit of Gene Wolfe's writing where um, you're introduced to a world 
that is lying to you and has like specific pieces that seem like they're one thing but are actually something else. Like the very famous Gene Wolfe novel is uh, The Book of the New Sun, which famously is a fantasy novel. It's actually a science fiction novel. And I think something that the FromSoft games love to do is giving you certain things and then just constantly recontextualizing them. Like I've heard some people, I haven't actually gone these sections in Elden Ring, but I've heard that they're kind of cosmic horror, even kind of edging on science fiction or like alien elements that sort of come into play later on and really sort of shake up the setting and what you think its rules are. Um, which also kind of might pop up in wolf stuff as well, where it'll kind of feed you what seems like a conventional uh, high fantasy narrative, but then you have these more occult kind of science fictional elements or even Lovecraftian elements there in the background. It's just, he, you have to tease that out yourself. He doesn't just tell it to you. I guess at the end of the day, what I would say is that it really feels like the kind of, like Alex said, an 800,000 page long fantasy novel you dig out of the back of a used bookshop somewhere that's not like very popular. It's like written by a second stringer, but it has like a couple of quotes on the back of the book from some writers, you know, who are like, ah, yes, this is very good. And maybe like a quote in the back from the New York times or something saying like, so-and-so is a great writer, but without referring to like, which book was reviewed by the New York times It'll be like, oh, the New York Times reviewed like an earlier book by this author. And this is a book in the series that is by the same author, but the New York Times never even like talked about. I'll, I'll also say that, um, well, Alex said that this is a single volume book. I can understand that, but I also feel like it would be very funny if Elden Ring is instead like book two or three of a five book series. <laughs> Where you the, the first book is just out of print and no one around has it. So you don't know how it starts. And it also ends in a cliffhanger, so you don't know where it ends either. You just pick this series up in the middle. You're just thrown into all these characters that it's not like it was designed, it was written on purpose for you to be confused. If you read the earlier books, the answers are there, but those earlier books don't exist anymore. So you just have to... Yeah, Alex is uh, calling for the mics. I'm going to pass it over. No, this is this is too appropriate. This is just too appropriate. So when I was a wee lad of maybe 12 years old, my very well-meaning parents were like, Alex, you should read Lord of the Rings. It's all coming back to Lord of the Rings. And in their ignorance, you know which book they got me? Two Towers. So I, the first book of Lord of the Rings that I read was Two Towers. So you actually described precisely young Alex's first experience with Lord of the Rings, starting fully in media rest in the middle of, you know, the story in Two Towers, knowing nothing and yet learning so much. Um, so it actually really shaped my understanding of Lord of the Rings when I, you know, finally did go back to Fellowship and I read that and it was, you know, a whole other thing. I should also add that I read book one and so Fellowship and, and Two Towers in Romanian and then read the final book in English. And then I don't think I've ever gone back and reread the first two in English. So uh, for the listeners, I, I came here to the U.S. when I was 13 years old. So English is not my first language, uh, which is also why I enjoyed uh, reading Tolkien in Romanian at first. 
it's very funny to me that Alex sort of brings up his multilingual background and the fact that he read the Lord of the Rings in another language because one of the most famous sort of founding myths of the Dark Souls games is that uh, Miyazaki apparently read, tried to read fantasy novels, read fantasy novels in English, uh, or, or even read uh, fantasy novels badly translated in the Japanese and just had to sort of puzzle through what was going on. And I mean, I guess... I guess several of us have had that experience and kind of working through it. So it's neat. I find it pretty interesting that Alex had the same experience as well. And that was actually foundational in that way mm -hmm. to encountering that genre. Because I'm guessing that was your first, was that your first? Yeah, Alex is saying that's his first experience with fantasy. So I think it's great that there is this commonality here. And I have one last question before we wrap up. Oh, I, I, do, I do have a bit more of an answer on. So while you were, you're describing some of the authors that you, you, thought that really would connect to, to this type of story. Um, I will cough up whom the author is that I have not actually read, that I feel like there are elements of this. It's a very sort of uneducated thought because I have not read anything by Ursula K. Le Guin, but there are things in this story that, from what I have been told, from what I've heard secondhand, feel kind of like an Urs Ursula K. Le Guin story, particularly the, the uh, well, you're in Lyernia right now, and I don't know if you've met Celine. The, the sorceress. Yes. But in a way that there's like academy magic and, you know, there's the outcast, like unaccepted forms of magic. Like that is a very Ursula K. Le Guin. Again, from what I understand, I've not read enough or anything by her to, to, I need to rectify this, but so that does feel very much like that. And you've made it to, um, uh, what's the name of the region underground? Um, I'm, Siofra, Siofra, whatever, however you pronounce that. Um, and there are elements down there, particularly in the way that you really see a lot of, uh, you're closer to elements of nature. Like there's some bosses in those underground areas that are very clearly spirits of nature. Um, and they've very clearly been corrupted in some way. And there's, it's a, it's a uh, demonstration of how the, in this world, the natural order is so sort of disrupted that even nature's spirits have become to some extent warped by this corruption. Um, but it was, there was, there were points when I was down there when I was like, am I the, am I, should I be killing these guys? Like, I feel like I'm the bad guy here. Like this feels wrong, but there's also things that kind of clue, clued me in that, no, these things, these spirits were corrupted to some extent. So this is fine, I guess. Uh, but that also made me think of um, the other Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki and his work uh, in the way that um, it sort of has that idea of nature spirits being corrupted and in some way like man being responsible for that. Um, so I, you do get an element of that in this as well, which is very distinct from what you see in other souls from software games where it feels like it's more like nature doesn't have itself as much of a voice in the games. And I think that comes back to what I was saying about what I thought was unique about the aesthetic of Sekiro and how the natural order is visible in some way. Like you see lush environments and this game, you do get more of a sense for that. I think thematically as well as like literally in terms of how you interact with the world, which I think is cool. I'm really glad that you brought up Hayao Miyazaki because you just reminded me that Torrent from Elden Ring is basically just Ashitaka's mount 
from Princess Mononoke. And in fact, I bet you could go even further back into Miyazaki's work and you'd see similar creatures. So I think that... Um, I don't know who particular drew that influence, but almost certainly Elden Ring, like almost any Japanese RPG, honestly takes a huge amount of influence from Miyazaki's work. As for Ursula K. Le Guin, there's just such a range of Ursula K. Le Guin stories between like the early Wizard of Earthsea books, their more traditional fantasy, and her later work, like Tahanu, that's interrogating that earlier work, that I guess it's hard for me to say, like, I mean, you have to sort of say which Ursula K. Le Guin. But, you know, I mean, I think... I bet that people on this project read pretty widely, so I wouldn't be surprised, like at the very least, if they didn't touch on some of her work just because she is so foundational. Now, I have one final question for you, which is if you had the chance to kick patches into a ditch, would you do it? So weirdly enough, this game gave me the most mixed feelings about patches that I've had in any any Souls game. Um, because on the one hand, he definitely, there's more sort of patches deception that happens in the sort of early to mid section of the game. Um, not only is it the interaction in Murkwater Cave, I want to say, uh, where he repeatedly, like when he attacks you, then he teleports ports you to i don't know if you've had that pleasure or displeasure of that happening or yeah 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 um apparently if depending on how you get to volcano manor there is a traditional he kicks you in the butt and yeah so that happens as well i did not actually get that interaction in my playthrough because the way i got the volcano manor was different but he also there's something about this patches that feels different to me and i and again, I cannot tell if his quest line is there complete or not. It it feels like this patches, unlike any other patches, actually forms a connection to someone else in the game. And like potentially falls in love with someone. And that leads to him making an actual sacrifice. So this is like a tragic patches in a way that I have not seen patches. Because for the most part, patches just cares about himself. But there's a strong hint that in this game, he cares for someone else. Um, and if that's true, this is a totally different patches. And I, I again, I don't know that we... Do you mind if I spoil this? Or Okay. So when you get to Volcano Manor, Patches is also well, well. First of all, you might want to know what you don't. If you don't know, what, okay, you know what Volcano Manor is. Okay, so you get a Volcano Manor, and Patches is there. And long story short, he's actually partially responsible for getting you to Volcano Manor because when you run to him, run into him in Lyernia, he's the one that sends you to uh, this weird-looking girl. Rhea is her name, I think, um, and she's the one who can get you the invitation to go to Volcano. Oh, that's one way to get to Volcano Manor and for you to initiate that series of quest lines. But suffice to say, you talk to Patches a couple of times in Volcano Manor, and he reveals that he holds Lady Tanith, who's in charge of Volcano Manor, kind of. She's not really the person in charge, but she's like the person you communicate with that's kind of like the mediator of power in that place. And he hints that he holds her in very high esteem. Well, suffice to say, you run into him after you do stuff in Volcano Manor and you beat a boss and things kind of change in Volcano Manor a bit. Patches leaves because there's nothing else for him to do there. The next time you run into him, he's like, I've made a grave error. I might have reached the end of the line. 
but here, give Lady Tanith this like set of castanets because I want her to remember something else about herself that's worthwhile. Kind of something to, I'm paraphrasing widely here, but Lady Tanith, suffice to say, is obsessed with you know certain things in the game. And when you give her the, the castanets, she doesn't really care about the castanets. She's just like you know obsessed with what she's obsessed with. And there's no clear ending to that particular quest line. But what is very clear is that patches like for lack of a better word was simping for <laughs> lady tanith and it's not entirely clear what that leads to if anything but if patches actually met his demise because he was in love with this woman who didn't give a shit about him that's a very different take on patches than we've seen in anything else and i would not kick that patches into a ditch <laughs> that's very interesting I would kick Patches into a ditch, but only because I know if I did, he'd be back in the next game. So it, it's fine. He can fall into a hole, suffer for his transgressions and his crimes, and it will be okay. Um, it'll be fine. So I think that's it for now. Um, this is Double A. I'm Adam. And this is Alex. Um, and we'll probably be back next time with something totally different i think the current plan that we could change our minds would be to play uh ruina is that how you pronounce it ruina yeah so we're gonna go a little bit deeper uh into the weeds for this next one um but the general format that we're gonna take for this is for us to switch games essentially on who's recommending what we play next so this will be adam's pick uh, and maybe I'll make Adam play Daggerfall next. I don't know. That'll be interesting. So uh, I think I think that actually would be a thematic good continuation of this through line of role-playing games that we're doing, though. You could be nice and pick Morrowind. We could play Morrowind, Alex. I've played Morrowind. I've never we can play Morrowind, Alex is saying he's played Morrowind. So anyway, we'll, 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 we'll mull it over. Yeah. So, I could also just Okay. Um, well, if you're looking for me on the internet, you can find me at at Wendigo. That's W-E-N-D-E-E-G-O. I write pieces on Crunchyroll News sometimes. I write pieces on Slash Films sometimes. You can read articles on anime. You can read them about computer games. You can read them about movies or television. They're all there. Um, sometimes I talk about weird 800 to 1,000 page fantasy novels you find in the back of secondhand bookstores. So that's something you care about. Um, and um, you can find me at, at um, Alex the Lup, L-U-P, on Twitter. Um, I used to write about comics uh, once long ago and will hopefully be you know, doing a little bit more of that in the near future. But I've also written a few comics that you can find at uh, a um, comic book show or Comic-Con. Uh, if you find me tabling at one of those because that is the level of publication I have engaged in but um, yeah thank you for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll be back soon take care and good night